folks, this is Anthony Levinson for Alcohol Outliers. Dan Ekman is someone who I have wanted to interview basically since I met him. Uh, He introduced himself as having the rather unusual job of an independent alcohol rep, uh, or broker as he calls it. Uh, So a lot of his career was actually working with smaller companies uh, particularly in uh, Mezcal, uh, tequila, other spirits as well, giving them more access to the rest of the industry in New York. We talk about a number of different things, including whiskey, uh, ha- him having worked for Glenn Farkless for some time and interacted directly with George Grant, uh, one of the owners of the company, one of the original family members. Uh, he talks about tequila and mezcal. Uh, we talk about kind of different drinking practices, how different companies decide to deal with constraints to the product line as a lot of spirits, especially whiskey and agave spirits are seeing right now. You know, either prices have to go up or production has to go down or age statements have to come off or something has to change. So we kind of delve into a little bit more of that side of things. We also talk with Dan about balancing work and family life and how that can really be different depending on what you're doing in the industry. (laughs) All right. uh, Thanks for having me. My name is Dan Ekman. I'm the Northeast Regional Market Manager for Catoctin Creek Distillery right now. Cool. Yeah. So, well, thank you for coming. Uh, My pleasure. Yeah. It's always interesting to schedule these things around uh, an alcohol lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) And it is a lifestyle, yes. Yeah. So we, yeah, we just got here and uh, Dan Day after St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, there's that too. (laughs) Excellent. Yep. Um... Yeah, I just got to the pleasure of listening to, to Dan on a conference call. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting side. But oh, I Monday. Picked up a couple things from that. So. Uh... <laughs> nice. So Dan has kind of been someone I've been curious to have on here for a little while, even though I'm just sort of starting this thing, because you've had a pretty full career already. Um yeah, I've been around a little bit. You said you're you're just uh, you're not quite forty yet. You said no, this May actually. So what what month is it now? It's March. So I'm going to be forty in um, just over two months. Nice. I don't feel a day over fifty. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's coming. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um. So if you just want to give a little background in terms of um kind of where you grew up and just paint people a picture of sure uh, I'm how a Dan started native son of New York. I've never really lived more than about. 45 minutes away from this table right now. I spent two semesters in D.C. when I was in college, but that's it. Um, yeah, I grew. I was born in Queens. I grew up uh, in Great Neck, Long Island. Then I moved into Manhattan. I was in Manhattan for about five years, and I've been in Brooklyn 15 years now. I got into the liquor business in 2007, I would say, more as a, as a full-time sort of a thing. I had, you know, bartended on and off when I was younger. Uh, but uh, 2007 was when I decided I really wanted to make a career of it, and I didn't know anybody who was in the liquor business, and I found a couple guys, and I said, hey, how'd you get into this? And they all gave the same answer. My father was in the union. He got me a card. So, you know, that was it. <laughs> so that wasn't helpful in any way. So I um, I went on Craigslist, and I saw an ad for a wine store in Soho that was hiring, and I was like, great. So, you know, I was 
I, I shaved, I put on a tie, I printed a resume, I went down, you know, I had, a, I had it's not like I'd never worked before. Mm. And I showed up at this liquor store, and, you know, it was probably 10 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. And j- just and, for people like me who are too lazy to do the math, how old are you at this point? Um, oh, at that point? Yeah. Uh, I would have been uh, 28. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I had been in the cigar business when I was in my early 20s, and mm. then... When the smoking ban hit, that put me out of it, and I did real estate for a little while, a couple other things, and then I decided liquor was the way to go. So you were in the cigar business, and the smoking ban came around where people were essentially in New York. No one was allowed to smoke inside just about anywhere. Uh, We got down at the time. This was back in 2001, I guess it was. Um, And uh, there was a mayoral election, and it was Mark Green, Fernando Ferrer, and Michael Bloomberg. And... Mark Green and Fernando Ferrer were both campaigning on a smoking ban, and Bloomberg said, I'm not interested. I don't care. Got in office, and the very first thing he did was enact a smoking ban. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that I have personal knowledge of his campaign having taken money from tobacco companies mm. and then turned around, and but I don't I'm think just... that ever happens. That's not... <laughs> but that being neither here nor there. Um, so anyway, so the uh, the cigar thing wasn't working out, and I got out of that business. And um, and when I decided to get into liquor, so I show up at this liquor store, and uh, there's this kid, nice enough kid, I think he was 19, uh, who was the store manager, mm-hmm. and he's sitting across the table from me, and I'm sitting there, and you know he's wearing uh, jeans and a t-shirt, and I'm dressed for an interview, <laughs> and he looks at me, he's very confused, and he says, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "This is a job interview," and he said. It's for a stock job. And I I said, okay. And he said, it pays $9 an hour. And I said, can I have it? (laughs) And that was it. And I took the job and I slept boxes of wine up and down the stairs for $9 an hour for 28 days. And then I had his job. And then I ran the store for about six months. Um, We only sold New York state wine. So you did, you, I'm hearing this right. You, you did the stock work for 28 J's and then you took over. And then I was a manager. Yeah. How did that work? Um, I mean, not that I, I mean, I don't know anything about this guy. But. <laughs> he, mo- he moved on and the other people that worked there weren't really the kind of people who they wanted to put in charge of things. Okay. So, uh, so I was the manager huh. and, um, you know, small staff, tasting bar. We only sold wine from New York state. Hmm. Um, and it was an interesting, if myopic education in wine and liquor in general. And, um, it was a business that was not. It had been really, really good 10 years before I was there. Soho was different. The business sure. model was different. Um, the the laws changed that adversely affected their business model, and it wasn't going anywhere. So I moved up to a busy liquor store in Midtown, hmm. and I worked at uh, Sussex Wine and Liquor, uh, ah, okay. 42nd and 2nd. Nice store. Yeah. I yeah. Think I've, and, um, yeah, I know a couple of people yeah. who worked there, I think, actually. Yeah. And, um, and every Friday and Saturday, these guys would come in for like three hours and swan around and they'd schmooze the customers and oh I work for such and such a I remember there was a guy who was selling cachaça who was really good at it and there was a guy who was working a vodka brand who was really good at it and I saw these guys two or three times each and I said man you have a great job how did you get that job and they all these completely whacked out story of how they wound up getting hired by some random company and um and I said well if you ever hear about anything you know let me know and um one day I'm walking down the street and my phone rings 
restricted ID. So I answer and I hear this faraway sounding voice, you know, uh, with an accent saying, my name's Emma Davis calling from London. I'm like, wow, this is an expensive call to answer. (laughs) What can I do for you? And she says, I'm the global sales manager for Martin Miller's gin. What do you know about gin? And I figured, well, I guess honesty is the best policy. And I said to her, "Um, I don't really think there's a lot about gin I couldn't learn in a solid weekend. And that was it. And she said, all right, well, somebody spoke highly of you, and we're going to send a guy to New York to train you. We're going to see how it goes. That that was your response, was I'm sure I could learn about it over the weekend? That was my actual response. As I, said, was, was, I, said, I'm, I said, I'm pretty sure there's nothing about Jen that I couldn't learn in a solid two days. Okay. And she said, okay, cool. She said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> and she, uh, I guess, you know, I, I guess I said it in a way that she found charming. And uh, <laughs> and she sent a, a British bartender, a uh, really nice guy. His name is Sam Kershaw. Um, he came over and he taught me everything he knew about gin, which was everything about gin. Hmm. And uh, I'm a, you know, I'm I'm a quick study for academic stuff like that, so I absorbed it. Hmm. And um, and then they said, all right. And then uh, I had a series of interviews, and that's a whole other story. Um, and uh, they said, all right, well, you're hired. Go sell gin. Hmm. I said, how do I do that? And they said, just get out there and sell some gin. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I went to a bunch of bars and I had a bunch of drinks and. You know, the predictable things happen. But after three months, I hadn't actually successfully sold any gin. And three, I didn't, three months and you you hadn't sold I, anything? Not really. I didn't know what I was doing. Huh. I was completely clueless. I had, a, I had a phenomenal <laughs> I had a phenomenal product. Martin Miller is such a stunningly good gin. Huh. And all the people that I worked with were cool. Hanging out with them was great. But I hadn't been taught how to do anything. It hmm. wasn't really anyone's fault. I guess there was a, there was a misunderstanding as far as, you know, what I would be able to do without any background in the business. And um, and so, you know, it didn't work out. Uh, and I moved on from there. Um, there was a little bit of a gap, and then I wound up with Remy Cointreau. Uh, they were hiring somebody to do uh, the market work for the famous grouse, Blended Scotch. And I came on with them, and that was exactly what I needed because it was a bigger company, established brand with a market footprint, mentoring, something to learn and that was where i actually learned how to do the job huh. and as opposed uh, to get out in there and sell scotch it was very it was they had a very boutique mentality in martin miller which wasn't it's just i was a bad fit because i was too inexperienced hmm. to not i was too inexperienced to operate completely independently i wasn't in a position to be the only guy in new york huh. I didn't know what I was doing yet. But so when I was with Remy, there was actually, you know, a company behind me. And um, and I learned the marketplace and I learned the industry and I learned the legal ins and outs of of selling and promoting. And after a couple of years, I wanted to move up in the business. Um, and, you know, I'd been key account manager for two years, which is a great gig, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit limiting. And I how wanted is, to do... How is that limiting? Or can you kind of describe key account manager? Sure. Um, key account manager, well, okay, a key account manager in 2008. Yes. <laughs> this is, no, no, this is an important distinction. Okay. A key account manager in 2008 was industry speak for sort of local market ambassadors supporting the sales team. Okay. So I was there to go into the accounts and handle consumer activation with the with the three-tier system in place. Um, you know, you have the, the supplier level on the top which is people who have booze, and you have the retail level on the bottom, which is people who sell booze to people. Sure. But the supplier can't interact with the retailer. There's a distributor in the middle. Right. So and this is, this is all stuff that was put into place. Pre- by just, Congress right, after like Prohibition. Pro, pro, pre, yeah. Or post-Prohibition. Post-Prohibition. Sure. Um, the idea was 
to make sure that there always had to be a local distributor for any liquor product. So some big faceless corporation wasn't allowing a town to fall into ruin just so they could sell more booze. The idea was they wanted somebody who lived in the city selling the liquor in the city. Um, so if if the place where he lived were suddenly becoming a cesspit, he'd, you know, notice. Huh. <laughs> Before Prohibition, there were towns where literally, like, Anheuser-Busch owned the bar. And oh, the whole wow. town just disintegrated because everyone was drunk all the time because... There was absolutely no limit to it. They didn't have laws. They didn't have restrictions. And people were just drunk all the time. And the towns literally fell apart. Oh, interesting. Because they right. don't live there, so they don't care. So they didn't care. So the huh. idea was put, put, a, put a system in place where there had to be somebody local involved in the process. Interesting. Right. But it became a, it became a total boondoggle of thing. And yeah. anyway, the, the ultimate uh, repercussion of that, as far as I was involved, was a liquor company that makes booze or imports booze, somebody who has booze, is not allowed to sell it to a person who's going to drink it. And you're not even allowed to sell it to the guy who sells it to the person who's allowed to drink it. You have to sell it to this middleman, the distributor. So suppliers, the supplier level has limited options as far as boosting sales of their product. So the key account manager, my job, was to go into the accounts and work on consumer activation events. Couldn't give money to the retailers. I had a limited ability to give them advertising materials and displays and things like that. But I could go into the store and pour scotch for people for three hours and get them to like it and And get them to buy it. And then you'd start achieving actual pull-through sales. So consumer activation, you're saying getting people to buy your booze is basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, convincing people to buy the booze. And also I would do, you know, trade trainings, talk to bartenders, talk to retail staff and get them on board so they would push my booze sure, to the sure. people who would then drink the booze. Okay. Um, of course, in the 80s, ironically, key account manager was industry speak for the guy with the envelope full of cash on bribe day. Uh-huh. So there were a lot of accounts <laughs> when I went in, people who'd been in the business for a long time, and I'm like, I'm the new key account manager for the famous grass. And they're like, fantastic, he's back. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> wait, hang pockets. on. I didn't know what was happening. This was uh, very oh, confusing wow. for me until I figured out what was going on. But um, So I did figure that out. But then I wanted to get to a level where I was doing more in the business. And if your entire professional capacity is consumer activation, where do you go from there? Hmm. You don't really do a lot in the greater sales function of the company. So I wanted to do market management, which is what I'm doing now. But at the time, I started talking to people about market management jobs, and they said, we like you, you know a lot about the product, you know a lot about the marketplace, but you ever work for a distributor? And I said, no, Mm -hmm. I I didn't work for a distributor. I got straight into the supplier level because I had a specialized knowledge base. And they said, well, that's great. But if you don't know how distributors work, you can't be a market manager. And I said, ah, well, I guess I can hear my song when you're playing it. So I went to work for a distributor. Okay. (laughs) And I was with Empire Merchants for about a year. I had by far the, yeah, 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 the the behemoth. Um, And I had by far the worst sales run in the company. Uh Absolutely no escaping that reality. And that's a... Anyway, I had why. To, I, why do you think that is? Because it was all white tablecloth accounts with chef sommeliers who don't buy anything from anyone unless they already want it. And I was working in a division where we made our money selling Bacardi flavors. Mm. So yeah, no, uh, these were all accounts that other reps had given back because they were unmanageable. So you got you got the drags of everything that was right. left over. <laughs> right, uh, right. So that didn't work out for me, but I got the experience that I needed as far as understanding how distribution worked, hmm. and then I was able to go back out. And I actually didn't end up going directly back into market management. I went back and I got an ambassador role. Hmm. It was a little more regional, but it was with some brands that I really liked the idea of working with. Um, I was working with Glenn Farkless Single Malt Scotch and the the cool 
Cooley portfolio of Irish whiskeys, oh, which nice. was at the time Kilbegan, Tirconnell, Greenore, and Connemara. Cooley and is essentially cool disintegrated. Swan. No, they got or bought. They oh, they, they got, got bought. bought. That's right. Yeah, yeah. they got picked All up by Beam Global. Just, okay. Um, which you know, which comes into the story when when Beam Global buys Cooley and they no longer need an importer. So my employer, Gemini Wines, no longer has that item for me to sell. That's tricky. Right. So what? Well, what ended up happening was um, I. Uh, I got a bunch of other spirits from the Gemini portfolio folded into the job, and that was sort of my first time selling agave spirits. So ah, instead okay. of being just the whiskey guy, now I was working with still Glenn Farkless and still a little bit of Cool Swan, but most of the work then became Del Maguey, mm, uh, okay. Mezcal, and Hacienda de Chihuahua, which was a Sotol. Oh, nice. Um, and the, uh, the Casa San Matias tequilas and Siete Leguas tequila, okay. which were all phenomenal products that yeah. were very far outside the realm of my previous experience. Hmm. So I was calling on a totally different account base than I had before. And I was learning new things and dealing with new bartenders. And it was great. Um, it wasn't funded the way that the program had initially been planned on being funded, though, because Cooley was picking up the lion's share of the money. So uh, sure. after about a half a year, it was it wasn't that it wasn't working. It was that it wasn't paying for itself the way that it was so intended to. Gotcha, gotcha. So the program was broken up. I got, uh, I was retained for a little while to handle some distributor turnover. We were moving some products from Opeachy to Winebow. Okay. Um, and I uh, took care of that, and then that was it. And um, then I was independent. <laughs> huh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember this. So we we met when I was working at the Wiggle Distillery. You came in, and I yeah. remember you yeah, were I was there with my family over the summer. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I remember specifically talking to you about Mezcal because I was just starting to get in, and you were mm -hmm. very on top of that. So yeah. that was cool. Um, but so that, and I remember you mentioning the idea of an independent alcohol rep essentially yeah it was a broker basically. sure and it was something i remember even talking to some of the other people and for anyone who doesn't know pennsylvania is still a um <laughs> a control state yeah <laughs> it's a whole special different ball of wax so that the state basically does all the buying controls kind of every piece of alcohol going in and out of the state at least for hard alcohol and wine essentially oh yeah and I, I remember doing work in pa when i was still with remy and i'd go in there and do a mccallan blitz in you know great little towns it was in new hope and uh, I was in New Hope selling McAllen, and we tried it every restaurateur, and every, they all loved it. And they said, yeah, we're going to get this. And I said, great. And then I, um, uh, and then a week later, I spoke to one of the guys in PA, and I said, so what's going on? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, did they take it in? He said, I don't know. No. I said, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> he said, well, it's not like there's sales to track. I said, there's no sales to track? He said, no, they literally go to the liquor store and buy it and bring it back to the restaurant. Yeah. So in order to know whether or not it's there, we have to physically go to every restaurant and see. Oh, goodness. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, that seems like a lot of work. I don't want to work in this market anymore. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, they're, they're a tricky one. But yeah. I, I remember talking to people that were, you know, bartenders, other people in the industry, and no one had heard of this idea of an independent alcohol route. Like I'd bring that yeah. up. I'd be like, I was talking to this guy, you know, yeah. interesting it, stuff about Mezcal. And they're like, what, what do you mean? He's an independent alcohol. Route? It's not a super common thing. Not a lot of people do it. Um, a guy who I had known since I got into the business, I met with him with, uh, like my second week with Martin Miller. I met a guy named John Henry, who is phenomenal. John's been doing this for a long time as an independent broker. Um, knows everybody, knows every account. He's he's an unbelievable ball of energy. And um, he 
has worked basically for himself for years building brands that didn't have people full-time in market. Sure. And uh, I was like, wow, that's a really interesting business model. And after I, um, uh, when I finished with Sazerac, uh, with Gemini, which is a division of Sazerac, sure. um, I, uh, you know, I, it was getting toward Christmas and I had nothing to do. So I went to a, uh, I, was in a, I was in a liquor store in my neighborhood with whom I'd done a lot of business over the years. And I was talking to the owner, Heather Hamilton, who is one of the best people you'll ever meet, Long Swine and Liquor on Fifth and Bay Ridge. Okay. Um, and uh, she said, well, if you're not doing anything, work here. You're, you're hanging out here. You got nothing to do. Work here. So I said, this is a good plan. So I went to Long's and I worked there. I okay. worked in the liquor store, got back to my retail to roots retail, and, yeah. uh, hmm. you know, and I worked Christmas and then come, I don't know whether it was January or February, I was talking to John and he said, well, his Mezcal brand, El Buo, which they'd only launched a year previous, mm. um, had just really grown really what, quickly. What year is this then? This would have been 2014 now. 14. I didn't know. Or 2013? Was no, okay. it was 2013 now. Okay. Yeah, it was, this was Christmas of 12 going into January 13. And um, and the brand was just about a year old at the time. Huh. And uh, he had a great Mezcal, good liquid, good package. Yeah, good and stuff. the brand had grown to the point where they had gone from being just in New York to suddenly being in, you know, like a dozen changed states. Sure. And now he was on the road and he didn't have anybody tending the home front. So he needed somebody to work New York. But it was a growth company. You know, they didn't have sales volume or anything like that. They weren't in the black yet. So it was going to be, you know, you get paid when you do a tasting, you get paid when you sell a box, mm. things like that. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. I mean, I, I need a, a wage. So I was still working at the liquor store while sure. I was doing that. And then... John, who'd been brokering for these companies for a while, he said, you know, I have this other company. They need more boots on the ground. Why don't you work with them also? And I said, well, I'm working with you. He said, that's not how this works. Mm. So he put me in touch with the company. And it was, you know, you get a, a certain amount of money per week plus an incentive based on volume and the understanding that they didn't have all your time. Mm. But, you know, the idea that, okay, I'm selling at this time. I've got my Mezcal. And then I also had a vodka and I also had a wine that I was doing the same thing for and another product. And so then I folded in some everything. artisanal bitters. Right. And the huh. idea was I was working for these companies that didn't have the cash flow to bring somebody in full time, but they needed somebody to be selling it. So I'd say, look, I'm going to be going around to different stores. Having more things to sell these stores only makes me a better contact for them. Hmm. And you will get sales from me. I'll sell your product while I'm in these accounts. You just have to understand that I'll also be selling other things. And that doesn't change the nature of our relationship. You're mm. going to give me a certain base stipend because I'm not going to spend my money waiting for years to bring in a return. I'm going to be putting gas in the tank and sure. you know, wearing out my shoes and whatever it is I'm doing. You'll give me a certain base salary. And in exchange for that, I will make sales for you. Hmm. And I'll just be doing that for multiple people. Okay. So, so when, when he said that's, you, you said, he said that's not how this works. In right. Terms I was of like, like well, it's not like him. I'm working for you, therefore I can't work for him. Okay. Right. So it wasn't an exclusive gotcha. circumstance. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So then for the next couple of years, I, uh, I did independent brokerage type stuff. Hmm. Um, and then in, uh, in 2015, uh, my father passed and he left me his company 
and I wanted to give that a shot. So I spent a few years uh, as a home inspector, and I was huh. doing independent liquor store stuff at the time. I was doing brand consulting, and I was doing event work and things like that. But you know, I, it, liquor had become the sideline, and okay. my primary thing was home inspections. And huh. I said, I'll give this three years, and I gave it three years. Um, and in the beginning of 2018, I said, well, now I've gotten pretty good at this and I've made a living at it, but I didn't love it the way I loved my other job. I want to get sure. back in the liquor business. So was it, was it just out of, I want to keep this company going because it's something my dad started or did you have an interest in the home? No, it was, it was, it was really, stable? it was really something he wanted me to be in his business. And mm-hmm. I'd been resistant for years cause I liked what I was doing. I sure, liked the sure. liquor business. Um, and when he got sick, he needed a lot of help running it. So sure. I was doing it with him. And then when he passed, he left me the company. And I said, all right, you know what? This is, it's the right thing to do. He, he gave this to me. I should give it a shot. Sure. Um, and uh, then, you know, I said, well, I want to get back into the liquor business. And I started talking to people. And it was, it was a tricky fit at first because I, you know, I had a resume gap. Sure, sure. I had three years where I hadn't been full time with a liquor company. And I spoke to different people. And there were a couple of companies where... They liked me, but they wanted somebody with fresher relationships. And there were a mm. couple of companies where they wanted me, but I didn't like their product. And I was like, I mm. might be able to sell this, but it's not something that I can really get behind. Right. So I and you're kind of getting back into the yeah, industry because so you didn't, want to. So yeah. It's... So I didn't. I, I didn't sign on with them. And mm. then, um, and then I had a really good conversation with a guy named Chad, who was at the time the national sales manager for Catoctin Creek. Okay. Um, and, you know, based on their needs as a company, where they were in the growth cycle, my professional background, it seemed like it would be a good fit. And then it in here for a few weeks, and that's the way these things work. And then um, I had a great conversation with Scott Harris, who's the owner of the distillery, a fantastic guy. Um, and, uh, and the conversation went really well. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm feeling good about this. And then um, uh, on the Friday before Labor Day weekend, I got an email in the morning. We'd like to extend you an offer. I said, I'd love to accept an offer. Sure. <laughs> and uh, they sent me an offer, and I liked it. And um, and I had a phone call with Scott, and he said, so you, what do you think? And I said, I'd be happy to accept your offer. He said, great, when can you start? And I, half-joking, said, well, you know, it's Friday before a long weekend, so obviously I couldn't start until Tuesday. And he said, Tuesday's great. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, fantastic. Tuesday it is. And he said, he said, he said, I'll get on the phone and I'll book your flight. And I said, you book my what? <laughs> and he said, you got to come down to the distillery and get religion for the brand. Oh, can man. I come down for the week? And I said, now is the part where I talk to my wife. Yes. And, and find out if I can in, actually start on Tuesday. They're in Virginia. They're in Virginia, in Purcellville, yeah. Virginia. Ooh, so I, um, so I spoke to my wife who is patient and understanding and, yeah. and likes Catoctin Creek. She was familiar with the brand, so she was excited for me to work with these guys. And was probably okay that you had a regular full-time job. She was totally comfortable yeah. with that since yes. we had a baby. Yes. Um, that was another good reason to get back into the liquor business. And um, so uh, so I went down, and, uh, and I started on Tuesday. And mm-hmm. I went down to the distillery, and I made a batch of whiskey. I ate a pawpaw right off the tree. I learned to say oh, Appalachian. Yeah. I really, you know, oh, I, right I, I became there. a local. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now now I'm from Virginia. Was that and, the first uh, time you'd been, like, kind of working in a distillery? For I mean, obviously you weren't. Uh, Yeah, that was actually, that was the first time that I had done that, I think. Because okay. I've always worked with foreign brands. Sure. This is my first domestic employer. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, as far as the, the production of the spirit. This is Between the first time that I'm Scotland selling. Scotland and Mexico. Right. And this is the first sure. real American-made product that I'm selling. Interesting. Um, 
with the exception of a couple of small things that I brokered for that I wouldn't, you know, really, really con- consider. But um, yeah, so as far as a real employer, and I never, I never got over to Scotland, and I never got over to Ireland. Huh. So I didn't have a chance to do the work at the distillery thing. So oh, this was yeah, a yeah. real treat for me to go down there, stencil my name on a cask, oh, and, yeah. you know, and stand on a shaky ladder and dump 14 50-pound bags of grain right. into a mash tun. Yeah, stuff. no, it was... Uh, and then realize, like, this is really hard work if you're doing this five days really, a week. It's really hard work, yeah. yeah. And, and those things get hot. You, yeah. you definitely don't want to brush up against them. Like, oh, wow. Goodness, yes. a, yeah. I still remember the first uh, the first time I saw a still. I think I was, you know, a huge whiskey nerd for years and then went into the Wiggle Distillery after I saw they were hiring and decided I want to get in there. And it was like, I, I don't think I get starstruck much from seeing celebrities. Right. But I understood what people were talking about that the first time I saw a still that wasn't in a book. It's like... It's exciting stuff. Yeah. 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 But nice. Um, so just to backtrack a little bit. So we've kind of done the whole arch of your career essentially yeah. here <laughs> very quickly. The quick version. Yeah. Um, what was it that kind of made you want to get into the alcohol business in the first place? You said you, a good question. you kind of had a passion there, but didn't know a ton well, about it. Or? When I was in the cigar business, right. I loved my job. I loved my job. And uh, when I got out of the cigar business, everything that I did, I really didn't like. Hmm. I mean, I did, I did theatrical lighting and that was kind of fun to okay. climb up on high ladders, but it's 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 either uh, it's either a union gig with really strange hours or you're independent and you never know whether or not you're going to make a living and neither of those things was attractive to me sure um and i fought back and i was like well you know cigars was sales and i've been doing sales i was selling i did uh, i sold real estate and i sold everything i sold huh. leather jackets and custom ski poles and industrial transmission <laughs> repair i sold a few different things um, and I figured what I liked about cigars was the transactional nature of it and the fact that people liked what they were buying. It wasn't selling paper or electricity. I wasn't selling people sure. things they had to buy. I was selling people Straight things they commodity. wanted to buy. Okay. Right. And it's, it's a, uh, and as I, I wrapped it up in my head as this is a luxury vice consumable. Hmm. Okay. It's, it, it's a, it's a transactional thing where people are coming back again and again because they want to. Hmm. And that was the kind of consumer engagement I really wanted. Hmm. Like I had a really bad experience doing uh, as a rental broker in Manhattan for apartments because people came in before they met you. They hated your guts because they resented the hell out of the commission and the fact that the way Manhattan was put together, you needed a broker. And it was very hostile. And I didn't enjoy it. I knew so you, guys who loved it, but I didn't get off on you that. You felt kind of used car salesman. I was. Or, you know, there, yeah. There's nothing different about it. Mm. Um, and uh, and it was an information thing. All we were selling was secrets. Mm-hmm. You know, We know where things are, and you don't know, so you have to pay us, so we'll tell you. Uh, was, that's an interesting it, way it to was, look at it. It wasn't cool. Because um, I, could, I could almost see, I mean, the cigar thing and the alcohol thing, like, to some degree it's almost similar you know it's not it's not secrets in the sense that like this is industry inside information and so on and so forth but i definitely you know i think you have people coming in that don't know anything about oh education is a huge part of it when you're working with a smaller brand it's all about consumer education when you're working with big brands consumer education has very little to do with it but when Mm. you're working a small brand it's all about consumer education it's the only way you're going to get anyone to drink your stuff instead of somebody else's stuff sure and 
you're getting here, a little I, bit of New York in the background. Yeah. <laughs> when um, when I decided to get into it, I figured you know this is liquor seems like the next best analog to cigars. It seems like most of the things I liked about selling cigars would be similar to selling liquor. That makes a lot of sense. And that was how I wound up in that you know one oh. wine store in Soho. Okay. So both both cigars and alcohol are both things that like probably most people when they're four years old and are asked, what do you want to do when you grow up are not? The no. th- I mean, maybe you were different. But no, <laughs> no, no, no. I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was in elementary Archeolo- school. Okay. Yeah. Was that- I wanted to dig up dinosaurs. Okay. Okay. And uh, Pueblos and things. I thought that was, that seemed like a pretty cool gig. And I was out of that by, I think by the time I was 10 or 11 and I had a clearer picture of what the working conditions were like, I'm like, oh. Well, I don't want to live in a tent, though. So that wasn't that wasn't the thing I wanted to do. You now. were passionate and then, about dinosaurs and yeah, no, and then, um, up until the time. Yeah, no, in, huh. uh, in high school and, and uh, early in college, I was actually really interested in politics. I was I was looking at uh, at DC, huh. and that's why I went to school in DC for a couple semesters. Uh, and okay, um, sure. that was a political science major, and I enjoyed it. And um, when I came back from DC, because things didn't work out there for reasons that it's not necessary to delve into. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's so many possibilities. <laughs> Alcohol was involved. Ah, but sure. So, um, it's DC. Yeah, so when I came back from D.C., frankly, it just seemed silly to continue studying political science when I wasn't there anymore. Mm, sure. So, um, so I switched like it up to... Leaving New York and... Yeah, so I studied, I studied marketing for a few semesters until I couldn't remember why I'd ever thought that was a good idea. I hated it so huh. much. Why? It just seemed like the dumbest thing to study in college. I was like, <laughs> I was like, what am I? Because I was going to Baruch, which is a great school. Okay, it's a commuter school. Yeah, most of the people at Baruch were either recent immigrants or the children of recent immigrants. All huh. of us had jobs. Okay. We were all taking a full class load and working full time jobs. I was working at Nat Sherman. I was working a 35, 40 hour week and I was taking 12 credits just like all of my friends. Mm. We were full time employed and full time students. Wow, and. I was learning more about business at work than I was in class. And I was like, sure. what, what am I doing with myself? So here I am at this very famous business college in Manhattan, and I switched my major from marketing to English literature. Now, Baruch <laughs> has, if you count the part-time students, about 50,000 undergrads. The English department had 200 kids. Wow. <laughs> 200 kids. Okay. <laughs> and it was great because you, you knew your entire department. It was like a it was like a Fleetwood Mac reunion. Everybody, you know, just <laughs> swapped around and whatever. And um, and it was fun. And I uh, and I was learning. I was studying something I enjoyed. I loved books, huh. but I was working. Sure. And it never really impacted my professional development that I was still going to college for years because mm, I sure. I was enjoying all the classes I was taking, so I wasn't really in a rush to graduate. So, so was, I, I wound up taking classes for years. Okay. And um, Was it as much because you're like, oh, I'm supposed to get a degree, so I should find something and finish it? No, I was just, I liked, oh, why okay. did I eventually graduate? Yeah, or like, uh, you know. It my, took- my, my wife said, you have to graduate. Yeah. It's been 10 years. Uh, I was an undergraduate with almost 200 credits. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. You're just collecting. And I, yeah, point. and I was like, uh, you know, and, and at this point, I'm sure that, you know, she she was like, you, you've spent enough time going to class with teenage girls, and it's time for you to, you know, to be <laughs> yeah. done with that. So oh, I was like, okay, fine. Issue. Yeah. So, um, so I, uh, yeah, so I graduated, and, and that was it. Um, but I, you know, professionally, my degree never really weighed on my uh, my employment. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Is is there a 
thread that you can tie from archaeology through politics to literature and finally the alcohol industry that you think has anything to do with no yeah. definitely not yeah definitely not just the, various um, things that interest yeah no know. uh well oh, not the archaeology thing because i was a kid but if you want to talk about it going from politics to marketing to english literature to to whiskey i'd say the one thing that actually ties all of those together is people hmm. is i like people hmm. And I like talking to different people and figuring out what they're into and how does that relate to the thing that I'm doing and the idea that, to a certain extent, politics and marketing are two sides of the same coin. You're trying sure. to get people's attention, but, you know, do you want their vote or do you want their money? But hmm. beyond that, you're you're trying to turn them on in the same way. You're just looking for something different at the end of the trip. I mean, the alcohol stuff, too, I would say, is yeah, it's because, a fight for attention. And really. that's and, and that's the weird thing to me about the state of the liquor industry is that it's gotten very wonky for a lot of people. And I mm. feel like they're—I feel like it's, uh, they're starting to miss the point. Like, mm. a lot of people have made it work—drink—not not the being in the liquor business, the drinking. They've okay. made the drinking into work. Huh. And it's just not fun. That's fair. Like, I— I enjoy a craft beer. Sure. I like craft beer, but I don't want to sit there and drink 12. Yeah. Like, that's that's a lot of attention to pay to 12 different things. If I'm thirsty and I want to drink beer, when I was, I was in a pool league for a very long time, made a lot of good friends, spent a lot of time in bars, and I was a Budweiser drinker. Mm-hmm. It was not like I didn't know better. Sure. I was, my job title was whiskey educator, but I was right. drinking Budweiser because it was cold. And I was thirsty, and they had it in every bar. And I could have 10 or 15 of them in a row without getting weird palate saturation or feeling like I was missing the subtle nuance of the sixth round. Yes. I wasn't into it. It didn't didn't do anything for me after a while. When I started, everybody, and I've always been sort of a young guy with old friends. I've had a lot of older mentors in my life. And, you know, these were guys who were, they're a scotch drinker. Like, don't talk to me about scotch. I was drinking scotch before you were born. The guy who drank doers. That was what he yeah. drank. He drank yeah. doers. He drank doers everywhere. If you didn't have doers, he didn't drink. Huh. But everybody had doers, so who cared? Right. It was fine. And now, so many modern drinkers, they want a different thing every round. They don't have the same drink three times in a row. And I'm as guilty as anyone if I'm in a bar where they've got this big wall of fascinating things. And that's great. But the liquor business part of it, the business, has always been based on brand loyalty. And the fact that people like a thing and that's the thing that they drink. Hmm. And the industry, I think, is to a certain extent totally kneecapping itself by encouraging this short attention span in the consumer. That's interesting. And then you get, I mean, one, you know, doers, from what I can tell, basically makes... Scotch. They make blended scotch. They, right. And they, they just make, have Dewar's White Label and they have a couple age statement things, but they, they don't have 19 Dewar's, flavors. And No, I mean, they probably have six or seven products on the market plus Aberfeldy, which is their, sing- uh, it's their signature too, right? malt. Right. Dewar's is a very complicated blend. There are a lot of malts that go into it, but Aberfeldy is their, it's their, it's their standard bearer. Sure. Um, and Dewar's is owned by Bacardi, so it's right. not like they don't have money behind them. Right, right, right. Uh, this is a giant multinational thing, and, you know... It's the same marketing machine that's behind Bombay Sapphire. Sure, sure. They're doing fine. Sure. But I feel like even within brands now, it's like you can't just have one thing. No. You don't get a lot of that anymore. The only the only brands that I see in the marketplace where you still have fanatically loyal drinkers, like that's the thing that they drink, Jack Daniels absolutely has that. Sure. Jameson has it. Yeah. 
Hennessy. Uh, Hennessy, Johnny Walker Black Label. Sure. Not so much Red, but Johnny Walker Black Label. Um, those are you know those are the brands that have held on to that sort of consumer loyalty model. Although even I was surprised by that one because there was a Lock Loman signature, which was something that they released as something that was like I think even if you looked at their website it said like this is to go up against Johnny Walker Black. Yeah, anyone and who does that is out of their mind. I think we had we brought it into to Roma to the store I'm currently at now and it was 30 bucks on the shelf I think. Mm-hmm. Um and we sold out of it just talking about that and yeah. I was shocked that that many people can... were actually willing but Johnny Walker Black is 45 bucks on the shelf. In Manhattan now, right. you know, depending on where you That's go. That's cheap. That's a good price. So, yeah. So, I mean, even more, you know, the further the further towards the financial yeah. district you get, I'm sure. But I, I was surprised that that many people were willing to. Right. And I think some of that has to do with, like, some of these brands that people are loyal to. I mean, the cost of Jack Daniels is right. but, really but, high but, right but now. But here's the thing about it. Yeah. All those people will buy it when yeah. they're in the liquor store and they're feeling like trying something new. Sure. They still eat in restaurants. And they're still going to have two Johnny Walker Blacks on the rock before dinner comes. And when they go to somebody else's house, that guy's got a bottle of Johnny Walker Black because he knows that it's a a bar fundamental that you're going to have guests and somebody's going to want it. And, okay, when I was in the cigar business a long time ago, I had a friend, phenomenal guy. I lost touch with him for a little while, and then we spoke very briefly. His name was Gennaro Filosa. Gennaro knew more about pipes than ever. Anybody. He had run a store called Wilkie Pipes, which was the definitive Manhattan pipe store for decades. It was up on Madison Avenue back when pipes were really a thing. Mm. And at one point, he'd been running the store on a day when Frank Sinatra came in with his entourage. Okay. And this was a very big thing because Gennaro sure. was a singer who was oh, also okay. in the pipe business. I I managed him briefly. Okay. I was I was a talent <laughs> manager, but so uh, was Gennaro was a singer. So this was the life. best day of his life. Yeah. And Frank Sinatra was, in fact, a pipe smoker, hmm. but never good. smoked a pipe in front of a camera because that was Bing Crosby's thing. Huh. Huh. So his thing was cigarettes. Frank always had a cigarette in his mouth because Crosby always had a pipe. But Frank Sinatra owned a lot of pipes, huh. and he had his guys with him, and they bought everything because it was Frank Sinatra and he had all the money on the planet, and. Um, and anyway, so uh, Frank Sinatra came in and he bought all these things. And Gennaro said, well, I'd love for you to try this one blend that I put together myself, these pipe tobaccos. I'm the house, obviously. I'm not going to charge you for it. And Sinatra huh. said, no, huh? I, don't, I don't want it. And Gennaro said, I'm, I, I'd be honored just if you took it out of the store. And Sinatra said, if I find it in my bag, I'm going to throw it in the garbage. Okay. And he walked out. And there was the one guy who obviously was it was his job to apologize for Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> and he said, Mr. Sinatra only smokes Revelation. Huh. Now, Revelation was at the time, it was a dime store tobacco. You could find it in every drugstore. It was cheap, chocolate-flavored Cavendish. Huh. And this was baffling. Why would this guy, with all of this money and fame, why was he smoking, you know, the equivalent of, the pipe tobacco equivalent of Marlboro Lights? Sure. Right? when he had all these options in front of him. And it wasn't like cigarettes. It was pipe tobacco. Was a, if you're a pipe smoker, it's a big thing. Sure. And money's no object right. for him, obviously. So, and he thought about it for a little while. And he realized it's the same reason Frank Sinatra drinks Jack Daniels. Frank Sinatra, Jack Daniels was nothing 
before Frank Sinatra drank it. It was a yeah. brand. People heard of it, but nobody drank Jack Daniels. Frank Sinatra put Jack Daniels on the map because he very famously was only drinking Jack Daniels. And he sure. was the most famous guy in America. And, now they have and Jack Daniels exploded as a result him. of it. Right. Yeah. And the reason Frank Sinatra only drank Jack Daniels was because he lived on the road. He was uh, never in the same town twice, huh. except Vegas, Atlantic City, but the guy was all always over the map. So why would he want to not drink something that he could find in every one-horse town in America? That was like the only thing that was That consistent. was its major qualifier, was that that could be the thing that he drank and he could get it wherever he went. Oh, wow. So Jack Daniels was Frank Sinatra's thing, and Revelation Tobacco you could find in every drugstore in America. Huh. So when he was on the road, he had what he had. So it was almost, you think, like he had enough variety and kind of changes in his life that he needed those two things to be constants almost. I would think that if you spend your whole life on the road, you want certain foundational things uh, to to keep you, you know, hmm. to keep you steady. That's interesting. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. You all right there? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm going to feed the meter in 10 minutes, but I'll do it sure, from the sure. table. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's, um, good to, it's good to be alive in 2019. Oh, yeah. This is yeah. helpful. Um, nice. So so when, when I think about these brands like Johnny Walker Black Label, because that wasn't a totally purposeless tangent. Sure. Ubiquity yeah. is their business model. It's the Coca-Cola thing. Right. It's, it's, it's that it go. is everywhere. And hmm. I'll if I'm in a restaurant and I'm sitting at the table and I'm not looking at the bar, I'll absolutely 100% get a Johnny Walker Black on the rocks sure. before the meal because I know they have it. Right. And Johnny Walker Black Label is, you know, a lot of scotch snobs look down their nose at it. I think those guys are out of their mind. It's a totally good scotch. For sure. And of the scotches that you can find everywhere, it's certainly the best. Yep. Of the scotch that you know for sure everyone has in every bar and liquor store in the country. They will have it at the airport. Right. They'll have it everywhere. You could be in—I mean, I've worked in— weird biker bars where we were repairing the furniture twice a month we had johnny walker black label there oh yeah yeah it was it was well booze and flat beer and smashed bar stools but we had johnny walker black no matter what yeah so you know uh, there's that was the old way of drinking and in the 90s when i was really developing as a drinker that was the way that things were like we had I don't know, seven bourbons, maybe eight in New York. That was it. We didn't have this wall in New York of American whiskey. Whole, Most of like, these distilleries that people now think of as like key distilleries that are for everyone who's a bourbon drinker, they didn't exist. Like who? Or they were only in Kentucky. Like you couldn't find Buffalo Trace anywhere. Didn't exist. Yeah. Blanton's wasn't. Everything from Buffalo Trace wasn't in New York at the time. Um, Bullet didn't exist yet. Wasn't That's, a brand. I can't. Even Maker's Mark. Maker's that, Mark but... had just hit. Yeah. If you wanted a good bourbon, like for me, when I want a high bend bourbon, Booker's is my go-to because it's what there was at the time. There was Wild Turkey, and if you really looked, you could find Rare Breed, and it, but you could find Booker's, Baker's, Basil Haven, and Nod Creek. Sure. Because Jim Beam had put this little bit of muscle behind their the small collection, collection, right? Sure. And. Um, and that, but that was what it was. There right. was and, and I mean, if you went to any bar anywhere, and when I'm saying any bar, I mean, if you didn't go to Brandy Library, they had three single malt scotches. That was it. They had, they mm. had, sometimes they had Macallan. They'd usually have Glenfiddich and Glenlivet. 
Yeah. Those were the scotches they had that weren't a blend. And at the time, everybody had, you know, like five or six blended scotches. It wasn't like they had Dewar's and Johnny Walker Red and Black. A lot of bars at the time would also have uh, Cuddy Sark, and they'd have Black and White, and they'd have White Horse and Ballantines. These are brands that people don't think about anymore. They're still mm. big sellers globally. But sure. in, in America, most bars now have like two blended scotches. Right. Well, it's easy to forget, too, I think, especially with all of the attention that single malts are getting these days that the amount of scotch being exported is still massively the cheaper blends or the more expensive blends and sure. i got into Any i got into a blends. huge online argument about this the other day with a guy who was you know he's like i ran the biggest whiskey bar in florida the guy still thought that blended scotch was half single malt was 25 percent single malt and 75 percent vodka and i'm like this is uh, your job was to educate people about whiskey oh no and you think that it's a bottle of grain neutral spirits that's a problem but, you know, there's... So and explain the, to people why it's not. Well, okay. Blended scotch whiskey has to contain only elements that are scotch whiskey. So, you know, it'll be 20, maybe 30% malt whiskeys from usually a variety of distilleries. They're legally allowed to go down to 10%, is it, I think? I mean, there's, there's no minimum okay. on the blend, but less than 10%, nobody would notice it and nobody would bother. I mean, you want to talk about there are some real rot gold blended scotches out there. I had a very rough morning once after a bottle of King George. But um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the other portion of it is grain whiskey. It's not grain neutral spirits. It's not Everclear. And that whiskey, it's distilled at a higher proof and usually from corn rather than barley. Mm. But it's still aged at least three years. Sure. It has to be whiskey. And if you buy a blended scotch that has an age statement on the bottle, every part of it has to be at least that old. Yeah. So, and just to be scotch, it has to be three years old. Right, it has to be at least three years old just to be scotch. So, you know, this was this was a problem. And the more the, the market tilted towards single malt, the to a certain extent, the more confusion there became. Sure. And so he was literally thinking it's like that a bottle of blend, like famous grouse is like you, you take a single malt and pour in 20% and then you pour 20% yeah. Vladimir in it and you've got... Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. He, 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 he thought Famous Grass was a blend of McAllen and Popoff. That's like, a problem. <laughs> right, right. So that's, uh, you know, that's... And, you know, that when I talk about my role as a whiskey educator mm. for the last, you know, decade, um, that's a big part of it, is that, you know, you get a lot of these guys who've been drinking since they were in their teens, and they say, you don't have to teach me anything. I know everything there is to know about booze. They don't actually know anything. Sure. And they, know they, been, they know they like it. They've probably been drinking the same They've been thing. drinking the same thing. They know what it tastes like. They know what yeah. they like, and that's fine. Sure. There's nothing wrong with drinking what you like and knowing what it tastes like. It's fine, but maybe it's nice to know a little bit more sure. and not be quite as adamant when you're wrong. The way I've always kind of seen it, too, is I think I think any good alcohol is, you know, any alcohol really in general, it's very similar to art, I think, where it's like it should be able to stand up on its own two legs without you knowing anything about it. You look at a painting, the painting is pretty kind of thing. But the more you know about it, you right. know. Well, context matters, too. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. And with a lot of, a lot of the newer distilleries, context is everything. They're selling a story. They're only using grain from within 15 miles of this guy's house, and they built the casks themselves, and, you know, everything is organic. And that's great. But at the end of the day, how's the liquid? Sure. Like, that. that's always been my big thing in liquor is, okay, 
you've got me to buy it. Absent the story, if you just put it in the glass and I tasted it on its own, would I want to buy a second glass? Sure. That's it. That's that's the big fundamental thing for me. And that was a huge difference when I was getting in with Catoctin Creek mm. was I had sort of been very crotchety about craft whiskey in general for years. Like Easy I was, to do. I was the whole craft spirits thing. Um, I was sort of opposed to it. I was like, most of these brands are trading on nonsense. They're not, you know, and, and half of them are going to go out of business and that's fine. But I really, you know, if I was going to work for somebody, I needed to know that not only did they have a story to tell, but it had to be in the glass. Yeah. You have to, you have to like what you're pouring. For sure. Um, and not just like the idea of it. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, ultimately that's what you're buying it at the end of the day. Right. And it's, it's almost the opposite. It reminds me of the, uh, George Lucas talking about special effects where he's saying like, you can have, you know, a special effect as a means of telling a story, but a special effect without a story is a very boring thing. And I right. think almost the opposite is true <laughs> with alcohol. It's like you can just have the story, but a story without good whiskey, which is actually the thing you're selling, is a very boring thing. Yeah. I think that we're probably nowhere near there. We're starting to see a drop off in the number of craft distilleries. Yeah. There's still, the market's still expanding. New distilleries are forming all the time, but some are starting to fail. You're just starting to see. And I think yeah. we're just turning, we're just reaching a precipice on that. I, I mean, be I, I've been, I've been saying for years and I still stand by this. We're going to watch at least half of these distilleries fold yeah. and they may survive in some smaller capacity where they're essentially a tourist destination. You know, we're making hmm. as much as we can sell at the distillery and that's fine. Sure. We're, we're paying our bills and, you know, we only have two employees and, and that's great. Sure. But, you know, the, the uh, you know, if you remember the, the microbrewery explosion of the 90s, that's what it was. They were mm. essentially uh, a, a restaurant by a different name. They mm. were a store selling the thing that they made for consumption. And that's great. But there's been a lot of confusion in the marketplace as far as what's the future. Sure. And where spirits is going. Sure. And I mean, like... You know, you hear guys talking about, oh, vodka's dead. Vodka's not over. You know, vodka's not over, and and Jim Beam is going to be fine, and Evan Williams is going to be fine. Yep. Um, you know, these are cyclical. That's... Yeah. No. No. Everybody, everybody has a, a really big opinion of what they're doing now that we're in the the quote unquote disruptor economy. Right. A phrase that makes me violently <laughs> ill. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, so it's, it's, that's interesting. Like the way you're talking is almost like the beginning of your career. The alcohol state was in this one place where everyone was kind of drinking one thing and that was fine and that was it. We're in a very different place. And now we're yeah, almost completely yeah. the other side. When I was tending bar in 1998, 99, I mean, we had a full service bar hmm. and maybe half as many bottles as many regular full-service bars would expect to be right now. I mean, we had four flavored vodkas. There weren't that many. There was Stolio and the three flavors from Absolute, and that's what there was. Sure. And we had that, and we had... Um, there were no... I mean, there were two fancy gins. There okay. were two. It was a big, like big time two? for gin drinkers, because we had there had always been Bombay, and Bombay Sapphire had come out, and there was Tanker and Beefeater and Gordon's, and everybody had those. Mm. 
And this was right around the time that we saw Tanqueray 10 and Van Gogh, which was at the time of Jen. Yeah. And they were both really good. I was tasting this. I was like, these are legitimately really good gins. Yeah. Uh, Van Gogh went nowhere. Uh, and it became, a you know, they made more money selling vodka, so Van Gogh became the vodka brand. And sure, then they sure. had, at the time, it was Van Gogh gin, Vincent Vodka, and then they flipped it to make Van Gogh the thing that was actually selling, which was the vodka. Uh, okay, sure. Um, made a really good triple espresso. But, you know, um, you know there the single malts we had, and we had a lot of single malts, which meant four. Wow. We had... Glenlivet and Glenfiddich and McAllen and Balvany Doublewood, which was new huh. and 40 bucks a bottle. Good times. Right. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, time. I mean, we, th- that's what there was. Huh. So people, it's not like people didn't drink. People drank, but they, it was less complicated. Yeah. It was easier to do. It's interesting because I look at it, I mean, coming from working in a small craft distillery and coming up to New York to work more in, in, you know, the retail side and other parts of, you know, the industry, it's, it was interesting for me. It's like the super, super complicated part was wrapping my head around wine. Right. And wine, I guess, still would have always had to have been. Wine hasn't changed. Wine's been yeah. like that for hundreds of years. But, you know, the, the problem is wine drinkers were always accustomed to the vintage change mm. and the fact that the wine you were drinking last year is going to be different this year. And the idea that, you're going to have three different wines over the course of the meal, and you're going to have a cellar with a hundred different makers. And that was a wine thing. Yeah. And back in those days, the common wisdom was that spirits companies made more money than wine companies because mm. they had devoted drinkers. Oh, that's interesting. Right. It was, you, you had people piece. who drank whatever you were selling. You had people who were only drinking Absolute. Absolute yeah. changed the face of the game in the 80s. Before the 80s, nobody cared about vodka. Vodka branding wasn't a thing. Watch Mad Men. Sure. Roger Sterling drank Wolf Schmidt. That was, that was a call back in those days. Wolf Schmidt was something he ordered in a bar to be fancy. What was it? Wolf Schmidt. This was a vodka? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's bottom shelf stuff. It's sure. plastic bottle stuff. Sure. Um, and then there was the episode where he got the bottle of Stoli. And that was very exciting. Huh. But, you know, once Absolute changed people's minds to be the idea that they should become picky about vodka and brand loyal to vodka, it upended the entire liquor business. Hmm. It killed scotch. Sure. Bourbon was hanging on by a thread. Right. I know that the Japanese were basically holding up the bourbon market at that point. Yeah. When you still have bourbon brands that are only in Japan. Right. Like well, that was Four Roses. Or that that was back when Suntory was undrinkable garbage. Now it's, you know, the Japanese are making some of the best whiskey in the world, but man, did they <sighs> make some terrible back. whiskey in the 70s. Huh. But um, yeah, so, you know, the way people drink has changed in response to the people making the liquor, changing the game on them. Hmm. And then when flavored vodka became a thing, and it wasn't a thing. There was vodka, and if you wanted it to taste like something, you put in juice, which makes sense to me. Right, and like still I still probably taste better. I like I'm I'm a gin guy. I love gin. I'm not a fan of these infused gins or these gins that have one flavor, like a hibiscus gin yeah. or a, like I'm like you know what? I want my gin to taste like gin, and then if I want the cocktail to taste like something, I'll make the cocktail taste like something. Right. But to me, gin is a base, and I don't need it to be more than gin. And I mean, a lot of them are essentially liqueurs now, too, that are... Yeah, they're like, getting a little too fancy for sure. me. And, uh, you know, you see the same thing with all this flavored whiskey nonsense, which is I'm not even going down that road. Yes. But, um, you know... Sorry, I got sure, too sure. aggravated to talk for a second there. 
<sighs> pop something. Yeah. Yeah, but no, it's so, you know, it, it, if you want to achieve a certain degree of commercial success, you need brand loyalty. You need people to drink the thing that you're selling. And you know, if you want to be one on a menu of 200 bourbons, that's great. That bar is not buying more than one bottle every three months. Sure, sure. Is there enough consumer money to go around to keep that many distilleries in business? Yeah, there can't be. How does it work? I mean, you're, you're taking the amount of money that used to keep 10 brands in business, and now it's supposed to keep 100 brands in business. Yeah. How much more bourbon could people possibly be drinking that now everyone could survive on a tenth of the revenue? Sure, sure. If people are drinking 10 times as much bourbon as they used to, you're still only making the same. Sure. Unless everyone is going to be nerds like us and have two to 300 bottle whiskey collection. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? The, the 300 bottles that I have in my bar, you know how many of them I haven't opened in six months? Oh, sure. You know how many of them I'm probably 70%. never going to rebuy? I bought sure. that bottle because it was interesting, but I'm not getting it again. Sure, yeah. I've got 40 other bourbons, and you know what? When the next thing catches my eye, I'll buy that instead of the other thing. Yeah. There are certain things that are always only ever in my bar because those are the things that I pull most often in a field of 40 bourbons. I reach for wild turkey rare breed more than anything. Sure. I love it. Well, it brings up another issue too, I guess, which is that like – you may have found a whiskey that you love. I mean, if you fell in love with Buffalo Trace when it first came out, you were paying like, you know, what, 20, 20. bucks a bottle yeah, for it? Yeah, now it's 35 and 40. I and... mean, I worked on a liquor store in on Madison yeah. that was selling them for 70 bucks a bottle last year, which, well, hey, which look, is I, criminal. I, 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 I once else. went in with my dad because this was big money at the time, and we split the $325 for a bottle of McAllen 30-year-old. Sure. Oh, my God. Now it's three grand. Yes. Why didn't we buy the whole case? <laughs> You're saying... Look, yep. you, these things, you know, everything changes. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's inflation, but it's not. Yeah, no, this is far beyond inflation. No, I mean, I used look, I used to buy Yamazaki 18-year-old for $85. I remember... So I remember coming back and for... I, ha I haven't gotten that personal on this show yet, <laughs> but so my wife is Japanese. I got into whiskey in Japan before kind of everything exploded, like right before. Yeah. And I remember coming back and I didn't buy Yamazaki 12 there because I knew it was the one that the PLCB was bringing in in Pennsylvania, the liquor control board. Yeah. And I got back and I remember looking at it and being like, 50 bucks? Should I spend 50 bucks on a bottle of whiskey? And it, it's it's the same thing as I mean not quite as crazy as your mm -hmm. McAllen, but it's like yeah now if you can find one it's a hundred and forty dollars. Right. Why well, I, I put things through what I think of as the Evan Williams test. Okay. This is how I test liquor. Yeah. Um, if especially if I have the opportunity to taste it in a store before or not before I decide to buy it or not, I can buy a bottle of Evan Williams for fifteen dollars and be perfectly happy. Yep. My evening will go the way I want it to go. I will get where I'm going, and I will have spent my fifteen dollars. If you want me to spend $30 on your bottle, it's got to be at least twice as good as Evan Williams. Hmm. If you want me to spend $60, it's got to be at least four times as good as Evan Williams. And once the prices start to climb, it starts to become a difficult thing to justify. It's like, well, this is a $180 bottle of bourbon. Yeah. And I do tastings for private groups pretty regularly where we try things against other things. And I go to in-store tastings and industry nights and... Okay, you've got six bottles of bourbon. They're all 200 bucks, right? Why am I buying this one against that one? Because I still have to choose. You put six of these on the market at the same time. They're all $200 except for the one that's $400, right? <laughs> so 
what's your consumer goal here? What are you trying to convince me to do and that guy to do? And you bottled all six. So obviously you mm. think that I'm going to buy this one and he's going to buy that one because we don't all have $1,200 to get the full line, right? right? So, you know, what's the plan? Like you're putting these things in the market. You're charging an enormous amount of money for them. Who is your target consumer and what do you think is going to happen? Sure. Are you, are you essentially saying you think a lot of them don't have a plan? I'm saying I can't understand what it is. Sure. People still only have so much money to spend. Yep. You're only, you know, okay, fine. The whiskey market is expanding mostly at the expense of the vodka brands. Okay. Nobody ever paid more than $50 for a bottle of vodka. Yeah, sure. So if you're getting these people to spend all this money, either you think people are richer than they used to be, or you're not very good at math. Mm-hmm. Like, you've got, they're good, and God bless anybody who can afford $4,000 for a bottle of scotch. Sure. Must be nice. Sure. Can't relate, but it must be nice. <laughs> well. But, you know, you're looking at a situation where everyone's stocks are depleted. People are literally buying cases of Macallan as an investment vehicle. Mm-hmm. They're buying whiskey as an investment vehicle. Now, for years, you've seen wine investors and wine speculators, and I get that. But at what point does it stop making any kind of sense at all? Like, when did this stop being things we did for fun? Sure. Like, drinking has to be fun. It kind of gets back it, to your original point. If too, it's not fun, what are you doing? Right. It's Yeah, and it's it's something that I think I struggle with a little bit myself. Because, I mean, certainly nerd out about it. And I think my preferred way to drink is to have several different single malts in front of me at one time and kind of jump back and forth between the two. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, if that's all you're doing, do you stop enjoying it as just what it was kind of intended to be in the first place? The best thing I ever heard a scotch maker say was when I was working with Glenn Farkless and I was talking to George Grant, the distiller, who's a fantastic guy, and I was talking about our 40-year-old, which everybody's 40-year-old scotch was... Fifteen hundred, two grand, four thousand dollars. Ours was five hundred bucks. Yeah. And I said, "Why is ours five hundred bucks? Like it's it's better than the others." And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "So what's going on?" He said, "I priced it very deliberately, based on the idea that it's not going to be anybody's every day. But if you got four buddies from college who get together and they haven't seen each other in a couple years and they're going to have a poker night, I wanted them to be able to split it." Hmm. And that was just such a nice idea to say this is. He cares more about people drinking the whiskey than how much they're paying for the whiskey. It's important to him that people enjoy it. Huh. Well, not only that, but he, I mean, that's a very specific reason for having that whiskey. Where, to your point before, where someone's bottling six different things and charging 200, 200, 200, right. 400. I mean, Glenn Farkless has 12 expressions on the market. It's not like there's any lack of variety. Right. And that 40 year old loos from, from a, presentation packaging point that 40 year old looks exactly the it's same exactly as the 12 year old and i said to him i said we've got a 40 year old scotch why is it in the same cardboard tube as the 12 year old scotch and he it gave me an interesting lesson in trade math which i hadn't thought about before if it costs him 20 bucks to make the tube just pick a number if it costs 20 bucks if it costs five bucks to make the tube but it costs 30 bucks to make a box and a lot of these fancy wooden boxes, it's not like they're cheap. Sure. Let's round down. Let's say it's a $20 box, right? Just for the sake of the math. If it costs $20 to make the box that the scotch is going into, when he 
paid $20 for the box, even if he puts it into the sale price at no markup, which he's not going to do. Nobody does just that. Just add $20. But let's say he just adds for. $20 to the, the FOB cost of the booze. Now it goes from Scotland to America. That $20 got taxed hmm. because it was part of the price. Sure. And then it gets taken by an importer who marks everything up. And then the importer gets it to the distributor who marks everything up. And the distributor sells it to the retailer who marks everything up. And that $20 box, even if he sold it at no profit himself, that $20 box cost the consumer $150. Good Lord. Yeah. This, okay. Yeah. So this is the issue with the, the tier so system we were if, talking if about. If your before, goal too. is to produce a whiskey, people are actually going to drink. And you want it to be priced so they can enjoy it. How is that going to be achievable if you're spending $150 on the box? Wow. Yeah, I never thought of it. I, I it's look not at, the kind of thing people would think about. Man, I look at those boxes and I think like, oh They're man, pretty. Am, I, am I paying an extra 20 bucks for this box? No, you're paying way more than 20 bucks for that box. That's painful. Man. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, but I mean, even e let's say, like, let's say even if the box only costs $5, you can extrapolate... And in many ways as you want, that five dollar that five dollar manufactured box still costs thirty. That's nuts. Because of the number of places that it has to pass through. Yeah. And everybody takes a piece. Right. So, you know, packaging matters, especially when you're in an import scenario. Huh. So do you do you remember and I, an interesting kind of segue, the first let's say you it can be any drink, but I would imagine whiskey is kind of like a, a central. I'd say whiskey and mezcal are kind of like the central focal points of your alcohol enjoyment, I guess you could say, <laughs> or your career and career. Let's definitely say career. There, sure. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you remember the first one that kind of completely blew your mind, and did it come out of a fancy box like the that? The first or was whiskey it? that completely blew my mind yeah. was going back into the wayback machine here. <laughs> what show was that from? Um, yeah, actually it was, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I was probably my late teens, maybe about 20. And, um, my dad and I got a bottle of wild Turkey, Kentucky spirit mm. and that's our single barrel. Yeah. And it's, it's proof. wildly different. Every release, they bottle it when they have a cask that goes in a different direction. Mm. And this particular one was just so fundamentally different from any of the wild turkey I'd ever tasted and so amazingly stunningly delicious that it changed the way I thought about whiskey in general hmm. the idea that you know okay it's not always the same and you can have this one thing that you're not necessarily going to be able to get again sure sure okay. and so you know that that became a thing that i processed and i'm like well okay so this can't be the thing that you drink because you're not necessarily going to be able to get it every time sure you want to drink the thing that you're going to be able to get when you want it huh. and that was when i became a johnny walker black label drinker huh. but um 
which goes but at the same the time you want to right you when you have the opportunity to try these special things you want to take it sure and it's it's i think it, an interesting huge difference between depending on it's almost getting similar now between whiskey and wine is like wine is all about the vintage is going to be different so it's like if you want to have that flavor again right you kind of have to buy a case of it. And even then it's going to be different sitting in the bottle from one year to the next, maybe it's right. especially depending on where you're storing it, right? Where whiskey at least has that ability to stay somewhat similar. In theory, if you have a good blender, whiskey has the ability to stay similar for a century. Sure. You can come out with the same thing every time. If you have a big enough stock in the right palate and you can do it. Yeah. Sure. You can bottle it the same way every time, but we're still kind of drawn to these things that are different every time well, the single barrels or the yeah and that's that's fine sure you know but to me it's the difference between going out to dinner going out to a really fancy restaurant and eating at home if you got a regular neighborhood place that you can afford to eat at with some kind of consistency you can enjoy a high-end meal that didn't take you any actual sweat effort you're going to pay more for it but that's what it's going to be then you've got the really fancy exotic restaurant where, again, unless you're phenomenally wealthy, you eat for a treat. Sure. And then you get the thing that you make at home because it's the price that you're comfortable with and it's either not too much work or you enjoy doing the cooking. But within the framework of anything that you enjoy on a consumption basis, there should be tiers of demand for exoticism. The idea that you have an everyday thing, and then you have a special thing. Because if the special thing becomes your everyday thing, then it's not really so special anymore. I knew a guy who absolutely hated commuting in his Porsche. It's a great car. <laughs> but he drove it to work every day, and, he, and he, he learned to hate that car because it was the car that took him to the job that he also hated. Huh. It wasn't special anymore. It wasn't the fun thing he did on the weekend, drive fast, take it out on the highway, and open it up. He spent half of, he spent three-quarters of the time in that car in second gear in traffic. It was being used incorrectly. Hmm. And a lot of these, you know, and that's where I've sort of burned out on a lot of the really fancy exotic booze. And particularly, I'm, I'm done with craft cocktails, personally, for consumption. I'm glad other people enjoy them, but I, I, want, I go into a bar, I want a, I want a martini. Sure. Make me a martini. Yep. If the drinking is the thing you're doing, then it's not really what it was to me, because drinking was something I did while I was having a good time. Right. Most of my favorite memories of drinking had nothing to do with the booze. I mean, the, it was there, but we were doing a thing. And drinking was something we did while we did the thing. Right. And if we had to spend five minutes at the bar every time we ordered a round because we were pouring over the menu and the guy was carefully muddling yuzu and, like, <laughs> it becomes an intrusion. Yeah. You know, I can think of a lot of bars where they have great drinks, but I've never had fun. Hmm. I've had great drinks. I wouldn't say I had fun. Yeah. No, that's a great distinction, I think, to make. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's true even, like, at, at the core, I think, of what, um, what, what it is that interests even the people that do kind of, like, nerd about it on a very high level or consider themselves foodies or whatever. I think it starts from a place of, like, if, if I'm going to sit here and nerd about, out about all these whiskeys and try, you know, 12 different single malts and 
compare them all. That means absolutely nothing if I don't get to talk to one of my nerdy friends about it afterwards. Right. If it happens in a vacuum, it's a useless experience. Nope. I've I've made a very conscious effort to no longer take pictures of anything I'm about to eat or drink unless it's for work. (laughs) Yeah. Unless it's for work. The only time you're going to see a picture of food on my Instagram feed, if it's not Catoctin Creek and I'm not presenting a cocktail menu placement or something like that, if it happens to be a picture I took of my wife and the plate made it into the frame, that's what we're dealing well, with. <laughs> sure. Or or if I cooked something at home and I'm really proud of it, I want to say, ha ha, I'm eating this and you're not, yeah. then maybe. But you go to a restaurant, take a picture of food? Sure. Like, just stop. Well, I love the, I think it was Louis C.K. had a, a bit about, it. like, if you're posting pictures of food to social media, this yeah. is actually a malicious act. Yeah. Like you're not hoping someone is at home enjoying an equally delicious meal. You want no, them no. to be on the couch eating yeah. Cheetos being like, oh, yeah. Dan has such a better life than you're I You're trying do. to provoke envy. Yeah. And it's ugly. Yeah. There's very, very little about technology that I actually think has improved the human condition. It's a fair bit. It's changed, it's changed <laughs> it. Not yet. Improving, I think, is that's I am, I, I am. I am a ridiculous presence on Facebook. I'm on there you all are. the time. This is true. But, I, you know... Mostly sharing. I don't generate a lot of content. I share a lot of memes and political nonsense and whatever. But, um, but you know, like when I think of the way that a lot of social media has changed the way we interact and a lot of technology has changed the way we interact, we kind of don't interact. There's a whole belief in the field of anthropology that the rise of cities corresponded very directly to advances in brewing huh. because... The idea that people living in close proximity to each other required an initial social lubricant. The tavern became the center of the town because otherwise people wouldn't have been able to deal with living near other people. Wow. That's so fundamental to the human condition, and it's been so badly lost by the fact that people want buffers between each other now. Mm. People, you know, you go to somebody's house and you ring the doorbell and they they, they dive under the bed and assume <laughs> they need to call the cops. Like... When I was a kid, we didn't have cell phones. There was a house phone, and sometimes you'd call and nobody would answer because nobody was near the phone. And I would ride my bike to somebody's house and ring the doorbell, and the parent would come to the door, and I'd say, is Jake home? When did that become scary? Hmm. Like, that you have to text from outside, because I've literally read articles online that say that ringing the doorbell is a hostile act. Wow. <laughs> like, ringing the doorbell is a hostile act, and there are people who don't want to get a phone call even. Yeah. They're like, just text me. Yep. Like, they see someone calling on the phone, and they think, oh, my God, who's in the hospital? Yeah. Like, this really? This is a thing? Sure. So, to me, that social aspect of drinking is key. The fact that the shared experience of being in a bar or a restaurant or even a liquor store, you can—the drinking isn't the point. The drinking is, it can be a facilitator. Some people are more inhibited than others. It can be a conversation starter. But at the end of the day, it's not just about the booze. It's a shared experience. And in order for it to be a shared experience, you have to talk to people. (laughs) And Instagram does not count. Posting a picture of the thing you're doing online is not the same thing as sharing an experience. Right. It's a, it's, it's not. I, I remember hearing it at one point where it's like you can be, we're more connected than we've ever been, but we're also more isolated than we've ever I have no been. difficulty believing that. Yeah. And it makes sense. And it's, I think it goes back to your point about why you're in this industry because it is a face to face person industry. Yeah, I like the people. 
It's I remember um getting to talk to um the name uh Steven Soderbergh yeah. who's bringing in this Bolivian brandy and he did a USBG event in Pittsburgh and he was talking about he said he talked to Dan Aykroyd first because there's you know all these celebrities getting into this sort of thing and he wanted some advice because Dan Aykroyd has his Crystal Skull vodka and he said the only piece of advice he gave him was like you have to go out and meet people and talk to them and so I mean, you could tell Soderbergh was like kind of uncomfortable he you know he's a filmmaker he likes being behind the right. camera he doesn't like you know yeah. being in front of people necessarily but it was a crucial part of the industry because this is a face-to-face industry oh no i remember when crystal head was first making a big splash and i was talking to the guys at park avenue liquors mm. and this was when they were in the old store sure yeah they even moved far but they moved a little bit yeah. and well, uh, the, on the only reason i mention <laughs> it is if anybody remembers the old Park Avenue liquor store store. It was small. Yeah. And it was really tight in there. But they did a bottle signing where Dan Aykroyd came Hmm. to sign bottles and they had a line that wrapped around the block. And I think they sold like I don't know, hundreds of bottles of this vodka where people were just coming up and Dan Aykroyd, he got out of the thing, he got out of the limo and he pressed the flesh and he shook everybody's hand. He took pictures with everybody. Hmm. Everybody had fun. And that was part of their brand experience. Sure. And they're never going to emotionally disengage from that moment with that product. You know, when you talk about the way people remember things, you know, the idea of tying a memory to an emotion or to a sensation. When I do, uh, when I do whiskey talks, I'll often, if I'm doing scotch, I'll often burn peat. Hmm. Not because I think that it's, specifically going to activate your olfactory. Any eh, guys will talk about that. I don't buy it. However, scent is the sense most directly tied into long-term memory. Sure. So if you have something that has a smell associated with it, you're more likely to be able to recall it. And I've found through long experience that if there is a smell that people tie in with a whiskey tasting, they'll come away remembering more. Sure. That makes a And the, the same thing happens with this emotional component of recollection and brand loyalty that this guy who drank Crystal Head, and Crystal Head ain't cheap. Sure. It's good vodka, but I mean, it's expensive. But Dan Aykroyd signed my bottle. This is a guy who's going to keep paying more money for it because he's going to pick up the bottle and he's going to smile because he remembers that thing that happened. And there are lots of kinds of beverage alcohol of various stripe that I will always be a fan of whether or not it still, frankly, suits my palate. Sure. Because uh. it reminds me of a thing, and when I drink it, it takes me back to that place, and I'll just, they've got me for life. Yep. I'm there. And the opposite is entirely possible. Oh, we were yeah. talking about on the last podcast, I think everybody has an alcohol that they had too much of when they were in college. <laughs> I do, although I didn't stop drinking any of them because of that. I don't know what that yeah. says about me as a person. I never, I, I never said I'm never drinking tequila again. Yeah. I maybe should have, luckily, but I didn't say it. Luckily, mine was a boxed wine race, so I don't have to worry about oh. I, I wasn't going to go back to Franzia anyway. Oh, wait. No, <laughs> hang on. I yeah. lied. Southern Comfort 101. Uh, 100-proof Southern Comfort Comfort was the one thing that I had a really... Anyway, yeah. No, I'm going back, too. I'm right there with you. Yeah, (laughs) 100-proof Southern Comfort. That was the drinking contest that should not have been... Yeah. uh, No, I'm right right there with you on that one. It shouldn't have had any survivors. Let's put it that way. And yet, 
That was it. Was very clever though. The guy said we're the guy said we have to stand at the table and do shots until somebody gives up. And I was like, why do we have to stand at the table? And he said, because if you drink, if you have a drinking contest sitting down, it's much more likely that you'll die. If you have a drinking contest standing up, when you can't stand up anymore, you lose. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. But if you do, if you're sitting like down, if you don't, Hunger Games. if you don't require <laughs> the ability to maintain verticality, you can put it down till you're till every organ just liquefies. That's a good canary in the coal mine for sure. <laughs> yeah, and the, huh. and the, and the format of this particular contest was two shots in the first minute, and then one every sixty seconds till somebody gives up. So standing uh, was important. Yeah. This is not a recommendation. No, don't. <laughs> if you can't do, get that from this, don't do that. Dear God, that was a bad idea. Wow. I'm just my daughter's just getting to the age where she says, "What's the dumbest thing you've ever done?" And I have to really come <laughs> up with like the fourteenth dumbest thing I've ever done because yeah. I don't want her to hear about one through thirteen. There's one you hear about. How old is she now? Nine. Not yeah. Yeah. There are different answers to that question at like nine, twelve, and twenty for <sighs> sure. Oh God, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that so that's a whole other question i feel like is like the the end is it's it's obviously easier i maybe to some degree doing what you're doing now and having a family than say like working in a restaurant or something but how how do you find having a family with kids and everything works with all the travel and and the alcohol industry in general it's rough but i think the travel is more uh, is the most difficult thing sure it's not uh it's not the booze it's not the hours. It's the travel. But that's, you could be selling anything. Sure. Um, whatever you're doing for work, if you're away, you're away. And to a certain extent, that's one of those things where technology has made life a little easier. Mm. Uh, you know, Skype and phone calls and, you know, unlimited texting and all that stuff. When you're on the road, I mean, years ago, before people had cell phones, I know, <laughs> there was a time. Yep. Before people had cell phones, when you were on vacation... You were away, and you couldn't talk to your friends unless you used the hotel phone, which was like $2 a minute. So you were just away, and it was nice to have that disengagement. But if you were traveling for business and you were gone for four days, you might call once at the end of the day, but you were much more out of touch with the home base. Sure. I mean, I knew a guy some years back. He was a national accounts manager. He, you know, he ran for a, for a major brand. A very big brand that was in every Applebee's and TGI Fridays in America, and he covered them all. He was on the road more than 90% of the time. This was a guy who actually left a picture of himself in his infant son's crib mm. so the kid would know what daddy looked like. And this is like, that's horrifying. That, that's like soldier on deployment level stuff. Sure, sure. And um, Your kid doesn't realize you're actually in three dimensions. And yeah, so, you know, the, it's the travel that makes it difficult. I don't really travel more than 20, 25%. And that's about, okay. you know, with kids my kid's age, I have a nine-year-old and a one-year-old, I'm not going to do more than that. Um, and even that, you know, it's it's rough. You need, a, well, you need a very tolerant and supportive spouse for one thing. Yes. You know, say, I'm just not going to be here this week. Good luck with the sure. baby and the dog. <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, no, the, as far as the... The having kids with different capacities in the liquor industry when I was doing brand ambassador work, that was different because that's when you're really schmoozing the bartenders out till three o'clock in the morning, four nights a week, plastered. I mean, drunk at 11 a.m. was was a thing. Sure. How, yeah. How would you how would you describe brand ambassador to people? that It's aren't? different for everybody. Yeah. But realistically, the idea of the brand ambassador is to put a human face on the brand. So when people 
are looking at your bottle in a sea of bottles that all have a story and they all have a booklet and either you spent more money than that guy or less money than that guy. But you want to have somebody who you know is very good at communicating your brand message and will go around to the places where people are listening to hear a brand message mm. and can give it to them in a way that's going to resonate to build consumer loyalty. Sure. Um, and this is as opposed to you're now market manager. Market manager. I do sure. consumer engagement stuff. Sure. But my responsibility is driving volume. Sure. Whereas the brand ambassador really is 100% marketing. It's what we call field right, marketing. Right. Um, they don't. Their their targets aren't based on depletions. Their targets are based on activations. How many things did you do? How many consumers did you reach? Did you spend X amount of time flying around? the region or the country or the world and visit every country club and do the major shows and get your picture okay. in Bon Appetit magazine with XYZ Top Chef. Sure. Um, so in that sense, your metric is almost how much time you're spending away from your family. It's entirely how much time you're spending yeah. away from your family unless you live in a major city and you're a local ambassador. Mm. Like when I was doing ambassador work, it was almost always from Metro New York. I never went too far outside the tri-state area sure. uh, you know unless i was doing you know the, like we would do a market blitz and the whole company goes to chicago for a week sure sure but no i mean i knew guys who traveled the country and yeah it's rough hmm. and uh, guys who, who had young kids in that job and it was like i was saying you know you gotta have you gotta have a a, a partner who is a full-time parent hmm. because you're not going to be there a lot sure and you're your uh, your wife is working in the industry, but she's kind of been in. She she's more office. Yeah, Emily works in an office. Sure. Yeah, no, she. I mean, she occasionally does stuff out in the field um, when they have a show, and she'll help out with something like that. But her position's transitioned a little bit away from that. Sure. In recent years, but I mean, we used to like we would work the uh, the Bourbon and Bacon Festival at Astor Place together. Okay. Uh, Astor Center, rather. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So like that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> You know, she's working on Valentine's Day. I might as well also work on Valentine's Day. We'll just, sure. we'll, we'll, I'll see you there. Hey, yeah. you know. Celebrate the next day. Get all the candy. Have yeah, all the but I mean, it's the same as anybody in the liquor business. Nobody in the liquor business parties on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. This like is you, funny because I remember. This, either you're working or you're in hiding. Yeah. We're, we're recording this the day after St. Patrick's Day, technically. And I remember oh, yeah, yeah. asking Dan, I was like, I don't know what you do then. And he's like, no, 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 no. no I'm no, not no, no, getting no, no, involved no. with that. I'm like, no good. Neither am I. Even like, the years hey, when I was working Irish whiskey brands. Yeah. I didn't party on St. Patrick's Day because I was working. Sure. I was working. I had stuff to do. And I was, you know, there was a 4.30 a.m. bartender brunch for the off-shift guys that we were doing. And I had to be on my game so I couldn't be wasted and I couldn't be exhausted. It was, you know, it's a job. Sure, sure. Um, So you've mentioned kind of a couple interesting brands and interesting people that you've gotten to work with. Is there someone or even a couple people that you would point to that would be like, that is someone in the industry that I have a hundred percent respect for well i think i've named a few of them yeah. already uh, john henry george grant to be sure uh, scott harris and becky harris who are my current employers who are really phenomenal and they um the thing that i like most about them as distillers these are the katakin creek these are the katakin creek folks okay. yeah the thing that i like most about them about uh, about them as far as distillers go is they had a brand vision in mind when they went out to establish a distillery. And this is part of the reason I work for them, honestly, yeah, yeah. is they knew what they wanted to make. They went out to make it. They made it. Hmm. And they're still making it. Hmm. And they play around, but not too much. 
It's not like the distillery celebrated our 10th anniversary last month, which we did, or which we did. But it's not like okay, now we have eight-year-old whiskey, and we've been waiting to have eight-year-old whiskey. No, we had a special release of an eight-year-old brandy, and that's fun. But our core product has remained our core product for the entire life of the brand, Mm. and it's the thing that we we make. You know, as opposed to a lot of distilleries where they're just they're evolving so rapidly that it's. It's not even that it's hard to keep up. It's that it's hard to keep interested. Hmm. It's like, okay, that's I get it, but at what point is this just going to be a thing that I can say, oh, good, a bottle of that. Sure. Please, put some on ice for me. Yeah. Well, it's back to the, the Johnny Walker Black uh, Jack Daniels thing where it's like even in a range of whiskeys, it's like you can do experimental stuff, and I certainly love finding the weird stuff but yeah. if you don't have that thing that people know what it is then it, you almost don't have an identity no you need to you need to have that yeah, yeah. oh and um i uh, wanted to uh, martin Duraz, who was the national brand ambassador for highland park hmm. for a while um, i'm actually not 100 percent what he's doing right now off the top of my head but he as far as the way to engage with a crowd in a whiskey fest environment Okay. Oh man, that was I, I didn't learn any I didn't learn more from anybody than I did from him as far as that particular aspect of it goes that you're dealing with a rowdy crowd that's been drinking for hours and is demanding that you give them this very expensive thing that you have one bottle of for 2000 people. How do you deal with that exactly? Hmm. And that was uh, that and I've never seen anybody do it better. So how how did he deal with it? He said he said you have to be you have to be cheeky without being obnoxious and it's a very fine line to tread. Huh. Uh but do he you was have a master example, of it. or do you remember anything that he did that particularly stands out? Uh, I don't think I could put it into words. Sure. It's just it's just, just a style thing. Huh. Yeah, it's just something, it, and it has to kind of come from doing it in practice. And yeah, you have you, you have you it. have to be able to you know it's like it's like you're holding him back with a whip and a chair, uh-huh. and you're looking at your watch and saying I'm not opening this until five thirty five, and it's only five thirty two, and no, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do it just because you said it. And the next person to yell at me goes to the back of the line. Yeah, <laughs> and you have and you have to make them know that you're serious without making them angry because you are still there for consumer engagement. Sure, if they hate you. They f- hate the product now. Yeah, you're the face of the brand. Yeah, you know it's um it's it's a it's a careful line to walk. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, so the back to the Catoctin Creek stuff. Yeah. Um, who? What would you say their main? Like you said, they knew exactly what they wanted to make. Yeah. When they went out, what what would you say that is exactly? They wanted to make uh, an American whiskey in a more Irish style. They were on vacation in Ireland with their kids, and they drank the whiskey, and they said, man, this stuff's really smooth. Why isn't anybody making this at home? And they went home, and they made mild, sweet, easy-drinking rye in Virginia, which nobody had been doing since Prohibition because— you know, the Monongahela style, the more aggressive Pennsylvania ryes, they— were the only brands that survived Prohibition. You know, it was uh, it was Rittenhouse and it was Old Overholt, and sure. those brands had managed to get away with saying for medicinal purposes only for 15 years, and then Prohibition ended, and rye was dead for 70 years, yeah. and then when it came back, those were the brands people modeled themselves after that, and the blending whiskey that was in the old Seagram's warehouse. Hmm. And the old Virginia style of rye, it hadn't made it. Partly because those distilleries just didn't make it, and partly because if you have something that's really easy to drink, how are you going to say it's for medicinal purposes only? <laughs> sure. Has to taste like medicine. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So they inadvertently resurrected the 19th century style of Virginia rye. Huh. So I've, 
I've heard, and this, you know, I'm coming from uh, Pennsylvania myself and working, having worked yeah. at a distillery that was priding itself on making Monongahela-style rye, and I've heard Pennsylvania rye and Maryland-style rye, and as I understand, the difference is maybe not set in stone, and it's certainly not acknowledged I'm... by the TTB, but, but what I understood was maybe the Pennsylvania style has less corn than the Maryland or the Southern style. I am not... I'm going to say I don't know 100% about the whole Maryland thing. Okay. I know that I've heard some people talking about it. Mm. I'm not sure what they mean I don't get the sense it. that it's set in stone. Like the all. Empire rye thing? Like people right. are trying to make, you know, essentially an AOC for rye made in New York? Right. Great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yes. I have no idea what they mean by it. Right. Like I've read on paper like what they mean by it. I have absolutely no idea how it distinguishes it from rye that's being made in other right. places. And other than the fact that it's from here. If anyone doesn't know, you think AOC is usually an... an area that is designated for wine production usually yeah, but it can be yeah, area origin control yeah i mean sure. burgundy right is an aoc so you know when we think about spirits with actual aoc there's not a lot sure. in the world i mean i guess technically scotch is you know has scotland but well with scotch you have the regional America. aocs you have isla malt and campbellton and sure. those are actual towns and in the world of gin you have plymouth Plymouth gin is the only style of gin that actually has to be made in a place. Oh. Um, so that's one. Uh, with brandies, obviously, you're going to have a lot of AOCs with things like uh, with things like cognac and sure. armagnac. Sure, has to come from cognac or yeah. armagnac area. What's what's the deal with Plymouth gin? It's a different flavor profile. So it has to come from Plymouth. From okay, I it has to come from Plymouth. Go to a bar. Get Plymouth gin. It is totally and drink different. it next to Beefeater. Oh yeah, they do not taste the same. Yeah. But Beefeater is a London dry in the classical sense of it, and Plymouth is a Plymouth gin. And if sure. you drink Beefeater next to Bombay or Tanqueray, you'll sure. say they're different, but they have certain commonalities. And Plymouth is the same difference from all of those because Plymouth gin is Plymouth gin. Yeah. And it's it's an it's a it's an AOC spirit. Sure. But you don't see, you know, uh, you, uh, some agave spirits have AOC. Yeah, you yeah. You know, if you want to talk about Bacanora, Sotal, tequila is a little bit more broad, but, you know, right. it is a, a huge, massive AOC, although I guess not technically more so than cognac. Sure, sure. So, real quick, I want to hear a little bit more about, because um, you were talking about kind of the, the Virginia style of rye, but then I do want to get into some of the the more specifics about Mezcal, too. Yeah, we can do that. But Whatever you want to talk about, man. It's your show. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So is there... Is there a... I've been staring at that bottle for a little while. Let's get a glass. Yeah, no, we can definitely do this. Um, so while I'm getting a glass, if you want to... Wait a minute. Hang on. Maybe I can... Oh, uh, you got right in the bag? Nice. Yeah. You know, traveling salesman never going to go anywhere without sample cups. Sure. Let's see. Hey, look at that. Little cups. <laughs> little <laughs> cups. So we're trying the, uh, the Contactant Creek Gin here. Which I have not tried yet, which is nice. It's made from the redistilled tails of our whiskey. Huh. Yeah, so, so no waste. No waste model. That's our goal. Tails. That's interesting. The tails. So if anybody doesn't... Do you want to describe just a little bit about the... Sure, here. Lahaya. Slatcha. Oh, God, that's good. Mm. So when you're running a still, the distillate comes off in three portions. Yeah. The heads... The hearts and the tails, or the, uh, the British Isles, they'd call it the faints. Sure. Um, and it has to do with the fact that distillation is essentially, you're using heat to separate the chemical elements of a suspension. Sure. Uh, or a solution, depending on the beer that you're using as your base. Yeah. But So basically, the varying 
evaporation rates of the different liquids that make up your base come off in an order, and they come off in the order of the temperature at which they vaporize. So water vaporizes at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, yep. right? If you know how to cook, you usually know that. Right. So, uh, or 100 degrees centigrade, but fuck centigrade. Um, so 200 <laughs> degrees, 212 degrees cent- uh, Fahrenheit, uh, water vaporizes. So we definitely don't want to get it that high. And alcohol vaporizes at about 170. Yep. So we want to bring it up to about 180, and you're going to get it there slowly, gently. And this, this and, is, just to interrupt real quick, this is kind of a crazy thing to think about, that like, if for whatever reason we lived in a world where alcohol had a higher higher boiling temperature than water, you'd be we'd be pretty hard pressed to make distilled spirits, right? We do live in one of those, but it's only at a solution exceeding ninety-eight point eight percent alcohol, I wanna say. I always get the number for this wrong. There's there's a ter- uh, there's azeotrope. Okay. Have you ever heard of an azeotropic solution? No. An azeotropic solution is a solution at which proportionally all the elements of it have the same boiling point. Hmm. Okay. Alcohol is azeotropic at, it's like 100, 197.8 American proof or something. So sure. I guess that's one uh, 198.6, whatever it is. When you or 98.6 proof. 200 proof, you'd be 100%. 200 proof would be 100% alcohol. But at that level, they have the exact same boiling point, and that's the point at which heat distillation ceases to work. Hmm. So to produce 100% ethanol, then you have to introduce a centrifugal force. Ah, um, sure, sure, sure. Right. But at that higher than that level, at that point, the alcohol has a higher boiling point than the water. I didn't quite realize that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, in practical sense, that doesn't matter nope. too much, because no. even if you're distilling... Vodka is about the highest thing you're going to distill, and you're getting that to 190, I think. Yeah, is the I, legal. I remember one time I was tutoring college i was tutoring a friend on trigonometry and we had a bottle of this canadian everclear called alcool <laughs> that we were we were alternately doing shots of and using it as a solvent to clean the mirror that we were writing on with a marker oh yeah <laughs> yeah but yes so yeah, that's i think number seven on the dumbest things that i've done but yeah. um well uh, we take the heads cut, yeah the, the first cut that comes off and use it to clean the table. yeah use it to clean the bathrooms because yeah. it's all it's good for it's poison methanol is the reason moonshiners go blind and then maybe die yeah um, because they're not so good at separating it out so when when people talk about why is uh why is distillation a heavily regulated industry there's not no reason for it yeah. it could totally kill you yep. if they don't know what they're doing oh, yeah. but so the heads come off and it's methyl alcohol and it's poison and we toss yeah. it and then the hearts is the part that you can actually age into anything that's worth aging right. and they would you know like the middle we cut. take we take a very big cut from the middle because we want the sweeter stuff in the beginning and the spicier stuff at the end some mm-hmm. distillers take a very narrow cut um and I think Highland Park takes the smallest cut of anything I can think of in Scotland, but like okay. McAllen talks about the finest cut, and they think I, th- I think McAllen uses something like fourteen percent of the distillate to actually oh, wow. age. It's microscopic. Wow. And I know for for anything peated, the kind of farther you go into the tails, the more of the more you're going to get phenol. Yeah, but through. so so when we're talking about the tails of an American whiskey, and we're using hundred percent rye, um, it starts to get lower in alcohol. Mm-hmm. And Starts you're going to start to get more isopropyl sneaking in, less methyl. But the other thing is uh, fusel oils, yeah. which are, it's a heavier ester that makes everything kind of taste like overripe bananas. Mm. And there's a lot of that in there. So you can't age it into whiskey that anybody wants to drink. Yeah. If you smell but, this stuff on its own, it smells like, it's like a gym locker room. Yeah, it's funky. <laughs> but so we redistill it. We have a second smaller still that rather than using it, our primary whiskey still, we have a little still that we use for fruit brandies. And we save up all the tails from the whiskey until we have enough to fill the still. 
and then we redistill it and mm. get it back up to uh, to bottling strength. And then we cold macerate in a blend of five primary botanicals, juniper, coriander, anise, cinnamon, and orange peel. Meaning you're soaking these botanicals without cooking them in the pot. Right. Still. Instead of throwing them in the still like most distillers do, we have these big milk jug looking things that will individually infuse the five different botanicals into. We're basically making five tinctures. Mm. And then that gets combined and distilled a third time to integrate the flavor. So are you doing, so, I, I know with gin, you there's kind of two main ways of getting the botanicals into the spirit. And we're using neither. Sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, normally you're, you'd be macerating the botanicals. Right. You either throw the them still. in the still and they boil with the liquid. Yeah. Or you would be infusing them in as the vaporizing process. You'd yeah. put these basically these hanging baskets in the still that the alcohol vapor passes through and acquires flavor on its way to the gooseneck. Yeah. Um, and that tends to give more of a delicate. I mean, this is Bombay Sapphires. Yeah, you're talking that, about you're talking about the basket versus the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Bombay Sapphire. There are there were four stills. Bombay Sapphire says there were four stills made by this one guy who was a master still maker. There were actually five, mm. but Bombay Sapphire owns four of them. Hend- <laughs> Hendrix owns the other one. They don't use it. it it's just exist. like no. Hendrix owns the other one. <laughs> right. It's just they don't they don't use it. It's like in their museum room or something. Uh, okay. Um, or that was the one last I heard. For all I know, now they've assembled it and are doing something to right. mess with the folks just over at Bombay. Bombay. I don't know, but <laughs> good. but um, no, the uh, so we're doing it differently. And hmm. you know, as I tell people, the, the the difference between cold macerating the botanicals and throwing them in the still, whether it's boiling or steaming, it's sort of like the difference between regularized coffee and cold brew. Huh. Okay. Because without that element of temperature, flavor elements extract differently so like i find that this is very forward with the anise and the orange peel Hmm. and much less so with the juniper because we're not basically boiling christmas trees so it's still got the juniper flavor it's still gin like i'm as a gin drinker i hate gin that doesn't taste like gin anymore Hmm. like like, if i can't use it to make a martini pass hard pass like i like hendrix i'll drink it on the rocks all day but i don't think of it as gin because mm, I feel like it makes a weird dry martini. So to me, it doesn't. It's a beautiful spirit that doesn't occupy gin headspace for me. Sure, I mean this is a little sweeter because of the rye distillate, hmm. but it's still gin. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing kind of this. They're referring to new world gin now, which almost uh, doesn't even have to be yeah. over because it's supposed to be the majority of the botanicals are juniper. It's just if you get too far away from the the core properties of gin. You can call it whatever the hell you want. What you've got is a very complicated flavored vodka. Sure, sure. And it could be easily said that gin itself is just a very traditional set style of flavored vodka. That's not untrue, but you could say that about most spirits. I mean, Brennivan, you know, it's just basically coriander vodka and... okay. Uh, most of the Akavits coming out of uh, of Scandinavia are, you know... Fit that category. Yeah, it's... Anything where the whole process is infusing a thing into a neutral spirit, I mean, Amaro fits that category. Sure. I guess the biggest difference is like when I think flavored or as a consumer, if I see, if I saw something that said flavored vodka, I'd be far less inclined. To, I mean, have you had the Nika gin? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's really real good. good. It's not juniper forward. It's the Haku, right? It, the Roku, Roku is the Centauri one. Oh, Roku Centauri, right, 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 right. The Nika one is like the coffee. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I had that at um, at Travel Bar, which if you haven't been to Travel Bar, go to Travel Bar. No, not yet. Yeah, it's um, it's a whiskey bar in Brooklyn on Court Street. Okay. Down yes. by uh, where they start to have names. I don't know. It's like four blocks short of Hamilton. Nice. And um, they have a stunning selection. They have so many kinds of rye, oh, but man. also really awesome gin. 
Okay. Yeah, check that I out. Like, if you're to, yeah. if you're in that part of Brooklyn, check them out. Yeah, Dan is like my my ambassador for good bars <laughs> in Brooklyn since we're recording this uh, up in Washington Heights. So yeah, I mean the the gin thing has gotten really big these days too. I heard in the next, I think it's supposed to be the next two years or so, exports from the UK of gin are supposed to eclipse exports of whiskey at this point. <sighs> If well, I think the definition of the UK is sort of hanging on by a thread right now, so I'm not sure whether or <laughs> not I'm comfortable discussion. giving any assessment of of their broader yes. export portfolio. What the country are we talking about? Formerly known as the UK. Ooh. But it's, it's worth it to mention that gin was the thing that Victoria and England was drinking itself to death on, when mm. whiskey was still garbage. Yeah. And the whiskey was garbage at that point. Sure. You know, they say that during the Victorian period, when London was really like falling into anarchy, um, that enough gin was being consumed in London town for every man, woman, and child to have a pint a day. Of gin. And assuming that babies and nuns weren't drinking so much of it, think about how much everybody else was doing to compensate. Is every time I hear a statistic about how much people were drinking oh, yeah. 100, 200 years ago, it makes me feel like the biggest wimp it's like oh well there have been times how they were getting anything well there have been times when i was drinking a a wholly inappropriate amount on a daily basis and it was you know either i wasn't working or booze was my job and i was making it work but bear in mind back in those days for one thing alcohol wasn't controlled the same way we do it now and the technology wasn't the same they didn't have the technology to produce spirits as high octane as we've got right now. sure sure for another you know assuming that their booze was as strong as ours Nobody drove. True. There were no cars. Yeah. And for the most part, nobody had clocks. Huh. So their day was different than our day. Huh. They didn't have jobs where they showed up at one hour and left at another hour. Sure. And nobody was driving. It so it's dark out there. There's not much to do. <laughs> something I learned when I was a, when I was a bigger pool player a lifetime ago um, was the the pool players in Manhattan when they played in the league that I was in, it was a national league. When they got to the national stage, they historically did amazingly badly okay. compared to the guys in, you know, in middle America. And the big reason was because we all got shit faced because we were like, eh, it's a pool tournament. But those guys, <laughs> those guys were all used to driving home from the bar at the end of the night. Oh, man. Everybody here sloshed into a cab or got yeah, on the train or here. walked. <laughs> we were, we drank on a totally different level than they man. did out there. So when you're, when driving isn't, isn't a part of your life, your alcohol consumption is different. That is very true. <laughs> I still felt, I mean, I think honestly, the best thing for the, alcohol industry in pittsburgh was the onset of uber because we had terrible terrible taxi cab situations there like most of the time i was there and no one wanted to go out and do anything it's like your public transportation really has a huge impact on how your your nightlife is affecting them and i absolutely believe that yeah, this one's for you. This one's for me because you said you'd only had my regular whiskey, uh, so I can't let that going. stand. Which one so is here, this? So this is our uh, 92 proof distillers edition. Ah, uh, the it's, 90s proof, nice. Yeah, no, it's a um, we're a single barrel whiskey, so most of All the whiskey, of them are? Com- yeah, everything we make is single barrel. Oh, I had no idea. So most of it comes out milder and sweeter the way it was envisioned to, huh. but about one cask in ten is just rebellious, and it comes out, <laughs> you know, spicy, intense, more Pennsylvania, sure, Mr. Nice. Pittsburgh, nice. and uh, so we bottle that at 92 proof, and the uh, the increased alcohol level is gonna amplify the earthiness of the whiskey which provides a bit of backdrop for the spice nice nice yeah 
yeah, much more reflective of what a lot of people would think of modern craft rye as being. Yeah, it's still like the you get spiciness there, but it is everything is still like much more yeah. like it makes it's perfect the same. sense. It's, it's the same distillate. Sure, we don't know that it's going to get bottled this way literally until. It gets bottled. Sure. Okay. It's just after aging, It's that's how it presented. And since we don't do any blending, we could either have every one in 10 cask be dramatically different than the rest of them, sure. or we could, we could bottle it <laughs> differently. Huh. It works out better. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely, I mean, you can tell that the proof is there, but it's, it's remarkably drinkable compared to... I mean, a lot of rye is, it's, there's aggressive. A, there's a reason that people weren't into it, I think, until they got a little more comfortable with mm-hmm. drinking hard spirits on their own. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was always a scotch guy. So for me, rye was an, was an easy leap. I can tell you for certain it was Michter's rye that made me fall in love with rye as a category. Mm. Um, That's a nice one. Yeah. Because it was right on the precipice between, you know, cocktail and neat sip. Sure. You know, like not a lot of people going to slowly savor a glass of Old Overholt. Sure. <laughs> and not a lot of people going to make a Manhattan out of a $100 bottle of Whistlepig. Yeah, for sure. Right. Makes sense. Canadian. I mean, but <laughs> sorry. What was that? Yep. But no, so that's... Um, but because it's envisioned as a as a more approachable distillate, even the spicier casks are going to be more approachable. Hmm. What's a... Uh, they're disclosing mash bill on this? 100% rye. It's, this is 100% rye. Nothing but. That blows my mind. Yep. It's all we use. So this... Yeah, you heard, you heard him just mention... Canada with whistle pigs. Whistle pig is is one of the only hundred percent rise on the market. One of the only other ones that I know of. I mean, usually they're doing like all the MGP stuff. from Canada. You mean, or you, from every distillery? Almost I mean, almost general. every distillery has a mash bill of ninety five percent rye and five yeah. percent malted barley because either they're still buying from LDI or they yeah. used to buy from LDI and when they founded their own distillery, they didn't want to change the mash bill. Sure. So, so this that, is also you may know that a uh, MGP. I think it just changed legal identity at some point. But it's the old Seagram's distillery. Yeah, this is what you were mentioning. Before. Right. After after Seagram's as a company got broken up and Diageo was birthed yes. and then consumed the world. Yes. Diageo, the, the Galactus <laughs> of the liquor business. Which, which I have to say, Diageo, to me, at least, I feel like we still have it a little better than the beer industry does. With if you uh, look, if you AB com- and if you Yeah, if you care, compare Diageo to them, it, it's... I don't hear stories, and I may be totally wrong, but I remember hearing stories with with uh, Bev when they would take over certain breweries that someone would bring home a six-pack of Beck's and be like, this was my favorite beer, and then now it tastes totally different. Yeah. And they would just kind of go in and cut every single corner, whereas, like, I can't... I mean, if I, I'm looking at my shelf right now of whiskey, and there's, like... I mean, Kleinleash is Diageo. Um, yeah. What? Uh, Although Kleinleash almost, almost not, well, okay. With the single malts. Yeah. From anybody's portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to talk a lot of smack about Diageo because the sure, day sure. may come when they offer me a lot of money and I want to still be able to be employed sure, by them. Sure. But um, <laughs> with any single malt, the odds of it changing dramatically are low because you can't change the recipe. And changing the stills usually costs more money than it'll save. Hmm. With Diageo, when they change a single malt, it's usually only in response to market forces. Sure. Which is understandable. I mean, market they're a giant company. Like- so, well, like, for example, when they, uh, there was like open revolt on the streets um, in Sky, but when Talisker went from an eight year old to a 10 year old because they thought 10 mm-hmm. year old was more marketable. Hmm. Um, or the, uh, the introduction of the lug of an eight-year-old sure 
people are like, oh, they're being cheap. I'm like, no, they're out of it. There's no sure. more luggable in 16 year old. Yeah. They're like, they're allocating it I'm wherever they can. They're doing what they can. It's a global, yeah. it's a global spirit in an exploded category. It's 16 years old, and there's no conceivable way to have forecasted market demand 16 years ago. When yeah. you're when your booze that is aged gets popular, your options are limited to three. You've got the Knob Creek way, you've got the Johnny Walker Black way, and you got the Jamison way. Yeah. And Johnny Walker Black raises prices every four or five months and controls demand to match available supply, and they're very, very good at it. And they still have a 12-year age statement. Right, because they make sure that the amount of it being consumed is the same. And they're very good at managing the allocations to foreign markets and introducing new mm. products to wet demand. They're very, very good at that. Yeah. You've got the Jamison way, which is bottle it younger and younger and younger until supply meets demand. And you have a product that's fundamentally unrecognizable, but who cares because people sure. are buying it 17 times as fast as they used to. Jamison, you find an old bottle of Jamison, it says on the label, not a drop will be sold till it's seven years old. Mm. That ain't the case. Huh. No mo. Yep. And yeah. Knob Creek was nine-year-old age statement. But what they did was run out. Hmm. They just ran out. And then and I this remember... Was, this was back in, I want to say, 2010, 2011, whatever it was. Yeah. And they, they took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Dear Knob Creek drinker, we're sorry we'll see you in the fall. I missed that. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, this is, this is the most honest, we're sticking to our guns brand message I've ever seen. We... Don't have it for you anymore, and we feel bad, but there's sure. nothing we can do. Which I kind of appreciate. And we'll see you in the fall. And sure. that was it. And um, I remember for a while they had changed it to where it just said patiently aged. Right. Which well, that, and that's when they like, do those but... little things. <laughs> right. But so with something that's a 16-year-old single malt, when you don't have it anymore, you can either say there's none and it's going to be five years before we have more, which nobody's going to do. I mean, well, or you that's can kind try of where we're at with the Japanese. Right. Or you can try to divert interest. With sure. the Japanese, they're like, there is none. We didn't see this coming. And, and the, and the <laughs> Japanese aren't saying we'll see you in five years. They're saying it's over. Yeah. There's no more. They're just saying we'll see. Forget you. it. We sold it at all. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Suck it. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know what? Uh, I don't have a problem with that either. They've lost me as a consumer, but I don't not respect their business model. This was I gave it's, you the third one right now, right? Yeah, is this that's cask, cask strength? Man, and it's still pretty it's still easy pretty going easy. For we're cask very strength. we're very picky about which casks get bottled at cask Man. strength. What is um, what is cask very small? This, one? uh, this one's one sixteen. One sixteen. Okay. Yeah, and it's all the same age. These are all two years old. These are all two years old. These are all two years old. That man, I I'm amazed at how good young rye can taste. Be Look, the the fact is, climate is everything when it comes to aging whiskey. The wood matters, the distillate matters, sure. but climate is fundamental. And when you talk about like the difference between Ireland and Kentucky, you know, in in the British Isles, whiskey is always going to lose alcohols at ages because it's cold and damp, sure, and the alcohol vaporizes off faster than anything else happens. Yep. And in Kentucky, whiskey is always going to gain alcohols at ages because it's warm and dry. Yep. And those dry barrel staves are going to wick off water faster than the alcohol can vaporize. And that can even depend We're, where they are. But the rye is. is historically a coastal United States spirit. They're making mm. plenty of rye in Kentucky now, and, you know, sure, go get down with your bad self. But rye is supposed to be made on the East Coast, sure. where there's a winter and there's a summer, and sometimes it's humid and sometimes it's not. And that cycle of temperature and humidity expansion and contraction causes things to happen a little faster. 
So we wanted to preserve the young, fresh flavor of the grain. We're very particular about which farms we work with. We're working mm. with three farms right now. They're all organic certified. Mm. And it's 100% rye. It's just three different kinds of rye. Are you guys organic certified? Or? We were. Frankly, yeah. the filings are a bitch when you're not the farmer. It's a nuisance. When, when you're relying on someone else's paperwork for your certification, yeah. forget it. Uh, so we just we stopped. It's still, still kosher. Yeah, nice. Still kosher. Nice. We haven't lost our hatcher. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, to me, the way that I think of rye versus scotch, and I tell people all the time, look, I sell rye, I used to sell scotch, I drink them both in equal proportion. Yep. Aging rye for 20 years doesn't turn it into scotch. No. <laughs> you can do it. Sure. Fine. I'm not drinking it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the way that I think of rye, and frankly, American whiskeys in general, I'm not a big fan of old bourbon. I don't want my yeah. bourbon older than eight years old. I don't want my rye older than... Five, six, maybe. That's where but, Booker No was, too. Yeah, but, um, you know, to me, the difference between American whiskey and European whiskey is the difference between a steak and a sauce. I a cook steak both and a sauce? A steak and a sauce. I okay. cook both of these things at home. I make red sauce all the time. My daughter's a pasta fiend, and it takes an hour, two hours, two and a half hours to really get the flavor profile of the red gravy where I want it. Okay. The longer you cook it, the better it gets. The longer you cook it, the more the flavors integrate. Now, it comes to a point, just as with scotch, where you've cooked it for long enough, and now there's not enough moisture in it. Sure. It's starting to get a little over thick. It's going to singe. You could add water, but just stop. But for me, American whiskey is like a steak. You want to cook it a little, and then you want to leave it the fuck alone. Huh. It's done. Sure. Everything you give it past that, you're just making it ruined. Sure. So stop. No, that makes perfect sense. Right. Now, I have I have to say there are a handful of older bourbons that I really appreciate. Some of them are quite good. They're less rise. I think yes. the only thing that I don't care about from the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection is the Sazerac 18. Mm. It's it's fine, and this is this is something. If you don't know, they they release it once a year. They're super high in demand. It's probably the yeah. after Pappy Van Winkle. It's the most kind of yeah. in demand American spirits, I think. Yeah. And some of them are cast strength. You know, George T. Stagg is yeah, is almost seventeen years old at cast strength, and it, like that's Listen. one of my favorite bourbons. I'm not paying five to nine hundred dollars for it. Brutal. It's good. I did a I did a I did a private group tasting. This was back in. In October, I want to say, mm. um, for my uh, Masonic Lodge. We're actually, mm. we do these uh, a few times a year. I'm having one tomorrow night. If you're not busy tomorrow night, come down. Okay. Um, tomorrow night is Irish, obviously. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So they, the, the long, sad story. 11, but the long, sad story of Irish whiskey. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> That's a whole other part. Yeah, it's very long and very sad. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, uh, we did a, I did a tasting where I did seven or eight American spirits. Okay. It was American-made, American-owned. That was my thing. You have to be American-made by an American company. Which is fewer and fewer. Fewer and fewer. Ones. So yeah. nothing, nothing out of beam, not not bullet, none of Four those roses, guys. Four roses, you Four can. roses, yeah. right. So I did uh, I did Catoctin Creek. I did Michter's. I did St. George Single Malt. Okay. And George T. Stagg. Okay. And at the end of the evening, I was like, I'm going to have a little George T. Stagg. It's very expensive, but I was going to have a little... And at the end of the evening, I was like, what did everybody like? And like five people out of 60 said, the George C. Stagg was my favorite thing. Yeah. And everybody else said the the St. George single malt was amazing, really? life-changingly good. I'm huh. like, I know, it's so good. And they said, so how much did I say the, the, I mean, I bought the last three bottles in New York City. There wasn't any by the of time the I was George. done of the St. George. But yeah, I'm like, I got three bottles. They were about $100 a piece. Yep. And they said the Stagg, I said the Stagg was about 500 Yep. And they said, why? <laughs> and I was like, well, because people are willing to pay $500 for it. And they said, yeah. but... What is it, really small production? I said, yeah, they only made like 300 casks of it. 
And they said, okay, that's pretty small. How much do they make of the St. George? I said, 19? Yep. And I said, and that was five? I said, yeah. And they said, where can we buy this? I said, nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I've reserved one bottle for auction. And we actually did pretty well. That was a charity oh. auction, and we did pretty well. Nice. But um, no, it's all about market demand. It's yeah. not. It's not... It's not anything other than that. People pay what they pay, and that's what they charge. Yeah. Well, and I remember, I mean, and George C. Stagg is an angry son of a bitch. Like, I mean, this... The, uh, it's con- hot. The Contoctin Creek... It's hot. Even though it's only two years old, it's 116 proof, you said? Yeah, it's still nice. Doesn't, I mean, it drinks like a bottled and bond to me. It yep. doesn't drink like it would be over 50. You should, you should try our bottled and bond. Nice. Oh, you do want nice. Very, nice. very limited supply. We got. Yeah. We made 380 bottles this year, and... I got 36 of them for Metro New York. Oh, wow. and yeah, they're still, if you're interested, I can tell you a couple stores where you can swing by. They're mostly in Brooklyn. Okay. Actually, I think they're all in Brooklyn right now. Nice, <laughs> nice. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, you can get it at Gowanus, Mer- Gowanus Wine Merchants. You can get it at uh, Brooklyn Wine Exchange. You can get it at Duke's Liquor Box. Okay. And th- this is a funny thing to me because I remember when, when Wiggle came out with the bottled and bond it was a huge deal this is and if it, anyone who doesn't know bottled and bond you're weird rules lots of weird yeah. rules. yeah oh this is yeah is the first piece of consumer protection legislation sounds about right it, so it was like before the fda was telling you like you had to cook your hamburgers at a certain temperature not to get diseases it was yeah. it was basically a way of stopping people from taking something like vodka and putting tea bags and rusty nails in it and selling it as four-year-old whiskey i would drink that Sure. <laughs> if it'll get just just to try it one time. <laughs> sure. Go Anything find wants. um uh go go online and look for the recipe for the uh, the Subway cocktail. Oh, Dave Wondrich did a very weird write up on that. Oh, it that is sounds terrible. It has a truly horrifying <laughs> ingredient called mulligan that I'm going to leave it for you to look up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah. So the uh yeah, the bottle and bond thing is fascinating to me because it's it was kind of this almost forgotten category of quality. Where it's like you knew it had to be at least four years old. It had to be 50% alcohol on the nose. It had to be distilled in a single distilling season. So yeah, it, that's the weird one. This very particular style. From grain grown in a season, I think. Yeah, you may be right about that, too. There's some weird rules There's some weird rules. And it had to be kept in this government, you know, bonded warehouse. The thing is, it's not that far off from probably one of the single biggest technological things to impact beverage alcohol since since the uh, since the olympics still okay in like 1500 years the biggest thing to change olympics still you're talking pot still basically right the bef- before they were even calling it the pot still okay, the, yeah. the, the the still that that moorish alchemist came up with in the 7th century sure okay yeah um was bottling huh bottled in bonds sure. couldn't come out until things were bottled oh, man. and it was like the 1870s when bottling became prevalent before that you you, went, you brought your jug. your jug and you put your dipper in the barrel and you got it out of there and that was why the term proof exists that was how they used to test how strong the booze was they'll they'll put a piece a little bit of gunpowder on the ground and pour the booze into it and throw a match in and see what happens when mm-hmm. it's 100% proved yes. but before that you got your whiskey out of the same barrel as everybody else it wasn't until it was bottled that it could be bottled in bond. That makes sense. And you had the tax stamp that went over right. the top. That showed and that, that was, was when you knew that the thing you were getting had been made under some kind of authority. Sure. Yeah. And this, so the fascinating thing to me about it right now is that it's still, if there's a deal, if there's still like a corner of American whiskey that still is like you're getting tremendous value for money. Mellow corn. Everyone well, drink mellow corn. Sure, yeah. Everyone drink mellow corn. <laughs> 
It went up in price. Now it's like fifteen or sixteen dollars right. a bottle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> used to be thirteen. This is a fun Heaven Hill. It's this this percent yeah. corn. This is me. The, but for the record, I also bitched when the price of uh, of Grace Papaya Dog went from twenty five cents to fifteen cents. So you know, incremental know. price changes. Yeah. Incremental price. <laughs> it's change. a thing. Yeah. yeah. But but so it's bottle and bond is basically still for like the big companies. You can get old granddad bottle and bond for like. Yeah, there are only 13 or 14 bottled and bond products in the market before the craft guys like us who are doing a bottle and bond now. And I think Wiggle did when you said, but like it used to be there were like 14 of them on the market. And I think nine of them came out of Heaven Hill. Yeah. Yeah. And it was you could only get like the old Fitzgerald. Yeah. You weren't finding that. But no, in New York, the only bottle and bond you can get in New York were old granddad, Evan Williams, um, Mellow Corn. Henry McKenna, technically. I never saw it in the city. Oh, really? um, but uh before it stopped being bottled in bond, the Laird's bottled in bond. Okay. Was one. But no, there were there was a bare handful of bottled in bond products you could find retail in New York. They were mostly Kentucky only. Right. Yeah. And they're good value. Yeah. Was... Because they uh, they get taxed less. Oh, interesting. Part of the reason the motivation to do bottled in bond, you know, why would you put yourself through such ridiculous, rigorous restrictions? Sure. So the deal was, if memory serves, with conventional spirits, you get taxed based on what goes into the still. Okay. With bottled and bond, you get taxed based on, well, rather, no, no, you get, with regular spirits, you get taxed based on what comes off the still. Right, because they're measuring proof gallons. Right. With bottled and bond, you get taxed based on what gets bottled. So huh. you're not getting taxed on the angel's share. Oh, my God. That's the big difference is you're not getting taxed on the angel's yeah. share. So the angel's share is, what, is what's going to evaporate off. You're not even getting to see right. any profit. But you paid for that. it. Yeah. You paid you for paid it. For grains, you're losing, you you're losing liquid time. volume, but huh. you don't ever get to sell it. Oh, it was man. just the cost of doing business. But with Bottled and Bond, if I'm remembering correctly, you get paid, you pay taxes based on what you bottled rather than what that you distilled would make some sense because it is i mean they're why go through it otherwise right and the ones from the from the big companies are the price is crazy it's it's, it's cheap really really cheap super cheap and i mean henry mckenna was one i remember thinking when bourbon craze was kicking off it's like a 10 year old age statement bottled and bond whiskey for right. like 30 35 bucks that's not gonna stick around no. and now i can't hardly find them in new york no, they're mostly four years old five years old uh they do the yeah. I mean, in general, they are four is the minimum. I think. Yeah, it has to be at least four years old. It yeah. has to be exactly fifty percent alcohol. Yeah, but it's but then you have these craft guys coming along, and that's like I mean, when when Wiggle released the, the bottle and bond, it was a premium product. It was like a seventy eighty dollar bottle or right. something. Right, and this is this is where my my crotchety drunk self who hates everything since 1997, <laughs> um, gets excited again. I'm like, yeah. you're doing this fun thing that's like a piece of history. They're bringing mm-hmm. it back, and it's not just, well, we made the whiskey out of, you know, uh, spelt. Like, right. great. You thought of something else. Fantastic. <laughs> like, Fantastic. One, yeah. of the, one of the only grains that is officially banned on Passover, and I haven't seen <laughs> in life, in person, right, ever. Yeah. You, I, I've, made, I've had spelt matzah, and now you made whiskey out of it. Wonderful. That's pretty cool. Yep. The guys at Koval are nuts, but they do interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. But um, the, the guys who are experimenting with things like Bottled and Bottled, that's still fun for me. Yeah. No, it's interesting. But it, it's fun to see it come back as a premium product. Because it really, I mean, in today's marketplace, it should be. 
So yeah. I think it's like if there's a deal to still be found in American whiskey, it's right? But the, the problem the, the problem is people have such a warped sense of what constitutes old whiskey. Mm, sure. Does four really sound old anymore? Right. No. When no, it was four was crazy old when whiskey was six months old. Right. Four was like ancient. Sure. But now, I mean, everything is is old. Right. Right. Um, well, it's and it's the other kind of interesting thing you see with the craft market and Contoctin Creek being you said about ten years old. The distillery is 10 years old as of last month. Yeah, I, and that's kind of on the older side for craft distilleries. I mean, a lot of them were... Yeah, we're right in the middle, I think. Yeah. A lot of the really old ones either passed or failed already. Sure. Or you have, like, St. George was on the older side, I think, and they were. Uh, St. George is great. Everything they do is good. Yeah. I love those guys. I'm not moving to California. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but, love- no, St. George does a lot of really fun stuff. I really liked um, the, the various editions of Breaking and Entering. What I've, was that one? Uh, they were the about? first ones to blend bourbon. Oh. And they the idea of breaking and entering was they're going to go in and take a little bit. Okay. So they blended like 40 bourbons or something. It's wild. Meaning? Uh, Which is the same thing as from their single malt. Okay. Like they bought casks of 17 different single malt American whiskeys. Oh, okay. And the breaking and entering. It's, you know, it's they're, they're doing, they're all about blending. Taking, and they're doing fun stuff with the blending. Meaning taking different companies and yeah. blending them together as opposed to like a small batch where you're just blending barrels. Right. No, right, no. It's right. uh, often, often very radically different distillates. So is there and, single malt blended from other companies? Is that what you I were saying, don't, or did I miss I, that? I don't know for certain. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to speak to that intelligently. I believe, that. yes. Okay. I believe they have sourced casks from different places, okay. but I am not certain. That's interesting. But, you know, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the, the, the idea that uh, that cognac, for example, is all about the negociant. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very few cognacs actually grow all the grapes that they use. It's mostly sourced wines, and in some cases sure. they're even sourcing the eau de vie, and that's mm. fine. That's part of their language. I had a big problem with American craft bottlers who refer to themselves as distilleries. Sure. I have a huge problem if sure. you refer to yourself as a distillery and you're not. And you're really just a marketing company that buys other whiskey and puts it's it in It's not. A it's not a marketing company. You're yeah. doing the blending. You're aging it in some way. You've modified it sure, since right. you received it. It's like saying a restaurant's a modern, uh, a marketing company because they're not a farm. Sure, sure. You know, I have no problem with the idea of people working ingredients, but I think right. it's fundamentally dishonest to position yourself as a distillery. Sure, yeah. When you're not. right. And th- this even, is a- even if you're saying, well, we've distilled stuff and we're aging it. We just haven't sold it yet. Just not you know what, what you're drinking right now. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Be, there's a huge amount of dishonesty with the consumer. And that's sure. always been the case in every aspect of every industry. Yeah, you buy sure. You buy stuff, you can brace yourself to be lied to. I don't care if you're buying toothpaste. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you're engaging in a burgeoning industry that is based to a certain idea on this idea of honesty and this idea of authenticity. Sure. Coming into it from a fraudulent place is very offensive. And most of the people in the category did it in the beginning, and many continue to. Sure, sure. If you look at the back of the bottle and it says, bottled in Georgia... Distilled Maybe in that means, yeah. yeah. Maybe it was all distilled either at MGP or LDI or Kentucky Distillers, sure. which supplies an enormous amount of bourbon to everybody. Sure. It's not bad booze. Right. Just stop lying yeah. about what you do. Yep. You picked the cask. 
you aged it or blended it or not, or you just said, you know what, this is a really good one. I'm coming from a Scotch background. Sure. Scotch, there have always been bottlers yep. who say with pride. Yeah. Signator, signatory uh, bottling of Highland Park, 16-year-old, chosen from this lot at this date. That's what it is. Right. Murray McDavid and all and these they, malt trust, all these guys they who usually, they made a career on being picky about the cast. And they usually have to pay more if they're going to say yes, where it came from. Even. Right. So, you know, it, it always struck me as ridiculous nonsense to hide the fact that you were not the distiller. Sure. Sure. And this was something, I mean, for American whiskey, it had been done for years. Like, the, I mean, even back in the day, the Kentucky Owl brand, which is, I mean, it's, it's, I think, a really, really interesting rye. It's now like 200 bucks a bottle, and that's kind of tricky, right? <laughs> but, but they're sourcing all the whiskey and just blending it in a very interesting way, and I think producing something that's really pretty phenomenal. It, but that was something that, you know, had been done for years. It's something that now is like, I think there's two sides to the story. There's what we're talking about right now, which is that, yeah, if you're going to, you know, and there were companies that were sued over this that said, you know, oh, we're made in Iowa. Hey, I got my Templeton money. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like I, said, I, got, I got that postcard in the mail. How many bottles of Templeton yeah. did you buy this last year? Maximum six. I'm like, yep. really? Because well, you know six, six. yeah, <laughs> and I got it my was, I got my thirty six dollar check. It was like five bucks a bottle six. if you bought a bottle. Six it was bucks six a bottle six bucks a bottle. bottle. Two fifty if you bought it in a bar or something, something like, like that. that. But yeah. I, you know, the, the buying it in the store was more profitable, so mm-hmm. that's what I had done. Mm-hmm. I got my thirty six dollars. But yeah, I mean, that was a, a company that was that had made in Iowa stamped all over the bottle, and maybe the bottle was made in Iowa. But like, and they, and they claimed to be using Al Capone's secret recipe, uh, which was what they got sued for. Oh, was that really? They got sued for claiming to use Al Capone's secret recipe when it was the exact same rye as everyone's. It's ninety-five, five. Yeah, it was LDI, and, and that's fine. LDI sure. made good rye. I yeah. have consumed a metric it's, ton of it, and that's fine. And it's in huge demand right, right now. Right, but just stop yep. lying to me for like one minute. What's funny for is for one minute, it probably would. They probably never would have thought to even lie about it if they knew that um, Smooth Ambler Rye at Cast Strength would sell for $400 a bottle that came from MGP. Yeah, <laughs> and John, same John stuff, never pretended knew. to be doing no. his own distillation. Yeah. Super honest, great guy. Yeah. Very frank about his business model, and that's great. So you um, you kind of got into the agave kind of thing when By you accident. were... Yeah, you were doing... It just happened to me. This is when you started doing like the independent stuff more? No, this was when I was working at Gemini and we lost Cooley. Ah. Four okay. out of the six brands I was developing went away. Yeah. Gemini had a full portfolio of products. Gemini was. How much can I say that isn't talking out of turn? Sure. Gemini was a division of Sazerac Buffalo Trace, which is a company that has tons of little divisions yeah. because they buy lots of little companies. Mm-hmm. And then they have a tendency to cherry pick out the things that they want and then leave the rest and do these things or swims. Yeah. Uh, Gemini was a company that at one point had been known as Monsieur Henri. Okay. Which was local, actually. It was a New York company. Hmm. And they picked it up for a certain number of brands. And then there was a very smart guy who worked for Buffalo Trace named Ken Quarta who said, give me Gemini. Let me pull some brands into it and let's see if we can actually develop some of these orphaned craft brands hmm. rather than saying, let's see how they do before we spend any money on it. That's reasonable. And Mark Brown was the CEO of Buffalo Trace, who is, I've never met the man, but I've been told he's a literal genius. Hmm. 
Um, he said, let's see what you can do. So there was then inter-office politics, which I'm not going to get into. Sure. But um, Gemini had a portfolio of brands, which were considered development brands. Whether they were new or old, they were brands that weren't current going, currently going anywhere. Um, and I was tasked with developing their whiskey portfolio in the greater New York area. The Cooley portfolio of Irish whiskeys, which had previously been independently owned and operated, we were it was we were saying it's the last Irish-owned whiskey in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, so that it got bought by either an American or a Japanese or both company, and yeah. then it ceased to be that, and that's fine. Sure. The Teelings are making plenty of money on their own. That's true. But um, when I lost that, which had been providing the lion's share of the marketing dollars, which paid my salary, yeah, the options were cut him loose or find something for him to do and mm. things were going well so they didn't want to cut us loose sure it was me and there were three of us it was me there was a guy on the west coast there was a guy in the south um and the company was based out of chicago so they didn't hire anybody for there um and the company had a portfolio of agave spirits okay that individually none of them had a lot of money behind them but the idea was if we cobbled them together we could put together some actual support here okay and and was there? I was, feel like I'm really going in and out because microphones. It's hard to keep the microphone three inches away from your sure. face, and I apologize. I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little physical. I'm Jewish, but I've spent a lot of time with Italians, so yes. speaking has become a very physical act for me. His hands are going. They really are. Um, and this, this at this point, was there any sign that agave spirits were really picking up steam? They had been. It okay. was. It was around. It was a little after the time when things had gotten really chaotic um, because. There was essentially an agave plague in Mexico right. where there was a massive falling off. And for people who don't realize it, the agave plant takes about a decade to mature. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we, we, I used to joke when I was selling mezcal that the product in my bottle took longer to make than Macallan. Sure. Well, yeah, for some of the wild uh, agaves for mezcal, you're yeah, talking like especially, 10 to 20. Yeah, when you're talking about the, 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 the rogue Tobala, Tobala fields. And, yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, so the market for tequila and mezcal sort of exploded at the same time that the supply of fermentable agave sugar constricted. Pricing surged the way that things do. Now, a, Brown Foreman did very well in that deal because they had bought like all the agave fields huh. for Milagro. They were very smart. Huh. But So this was, this was a light and this was like the mezcal version of phylloxera, phylloxera. yeah it was not entirely unlike that huh. um and it lasted for a couple of years huh. market uh, supply eventually picked up but demand has surged so much that now it's still you know it's the plants take a long time to grow yeah that's all there is to it but so um yeah no agave spirits were on the uptick they were nowhere near where they are now and i think tequila is going to continue to grow and i was um before I signed on with Catoctin Creek, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, John Marciano, who's the head of a couple of divisions over at Empire Merchants. Very, very solid guy who's uh, been a, a phenomenal help to me in the business, and I can't speak highly enough of him. And I sat down with him, and I said, where are things going? And he really believes in agave spirits hmm. as, a, as a growth category. And I don't think he's wrong about these things yeah. ever. He's never wrong about that stuff. Um, so I think that the uh, the field is going to continue to grow but when i got into it it was in the early stages of this sort of explosion and so they had uh they had a portfolio of mezcals they had a satal 
uh, satullas from northern Mexico. You could technically you could make it in Texas, except the Mexican government wouldn't allow you to. Right. The desert spoon plant grows as almost up to Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, and it's mostly ch- uh, Chihuahua, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It, ha- it has to be in Chihuahua to be Sotol. Right. That's, it's an AOC. And this, this is um, something, uh, Sotol is something that I've only kind of relatively recently found, and I've talked to... It's interesting. It's a delicate spirit, yeah. and the plant takes longer to grow and is much, much smaller. Yeah, and it's technically, I think now it's been not even classified as an agave. It's part of the asparagus family. It's a, it's a distant cousin. Yeah. Agave is a very broad thing you know 101 something or other subspecies and sure they're all in the lily family and it's possible okay. satal is closer to an asparagus but yeah. there comes a time when you have to say functionally you yes. need to relax yes <laughs> sure functionally to me it's, it's so tall that i've tried is kind of almost sat in between tequila and mezcal for sure there is no distillate of asparagus to which to right. compare it. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing to <laughs> remember God. about mezcal is it's a very recent phenomenon that the idea that mezcal is its own category. Until 10 years ago, maybe a little more, um, mezcal was the broader category for all distillates of agave. Tequila was right. a subtype of mezcal. And I've heard this explained as like big M mezcal and small M mezcal, and I'm not good enough you, at grammar. You could do that. To, like, <laughs> you could do that. Difference, yeah. Because mezcal was distillate of agave and Mexico is a big place, and yeah. until the nom system was introduced, whereby the the, the tequileros were actually numbered this is this is differentiated. If you, if you look at the back of yeah. a bottle of tequila, it'll say, it'll N-O-M and then a four-digit number. Yeah. And you can look at every tequila on there, and there will be some noms and other noms, but the fact is that there are only a few hundred people distilling tequila for the several thousand brands of tequila that there are. Yeah. The same as Buffalo Trace is responsible for a couple dozen bourbons. Sure. And uh, Heaven Hill is responsible for a couple dozen bourbons. Right. Tequila's like that. So when Mezcal was an emerging category, because for so long there had only been a couple of horrifying rot gut garbage brands. Right. Um, Stuff that had, had the worm in it. With the worm in it. And <laughs> the worm's another story that I'm yes. not going to get into right sure. now. But essentially, the worm is nonsense. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get high from the worm. Yes. But um, I've had the worm. I've had much weirder nights. So as, as I understand, the, the worm was there because... It's, a, if, it's another story. You want to hear another story? Well, I'm just... The way I had heard it was if... If there is actually like toxic or poisonous stuff in the mezcal, yeah, that the no. worm would actually disintegrate. It's bullshit. I've heard so many BS stories about this. If, right. if you have the real one, I would love to hear. It's it. going to be a few minutes. This is the I'll real one. As this ticket. is the real one, <laughs> as it was told to me. Yes. There was a guy whose name I have forgotten. Okay. But I maybe once knew. Yes. And he was an art dealer who moved down to Oaxaca at some point in the 20th century this to is, sell Oaxacan I art. This story. To sell Oaxacan <laughs> art. Yes. But he was incompetent. He was okay. terrible at it, and he failed. But he'd already bought a house, moved his family, established a life. He didn't want to go back with his tail between his legs. So he looked around, and he was down in Oaxaca, and they sold a lot of mezcal down there. Sure. So he said, all right, I'll sell mezcal. I'll put it in a fancy bottle. I'll ship it north. They'll like it. But he was aware that in Italy... A not uncommon sign of authenticity was to put a piece of vine cutting on the neck of the bottle. You've seen this? Sure, sure, sure. They put a little cutting of the vine on the neck of the bottle as a show of we are farmers and not just buying the juice. We're giving you a little cutting from our vine. 
So as a show of authenticity, he looked at his agave plants and he's like, well, you dig it up. There's no vine. But when you cut an agave open, it's got these little worm things in it. Hmm. So I'm going to put one worm in every bottle and the worm will be a sign that I bought the agave and I didn't just buy the liquid and bottle it. Let me ask you something. Yes. Can you think of a plant that when healthy has worms in it? Really? The guy was buying rotten fruit <laughs> and sending the evidence home. And it became a legend in Tijuana. Wow. And it became a frat boy dare <laughs> in the 50s and 60s. This is just proof of bad farming. Proof of bad farming. <laughs> because it's the grub of a moth yeah. that lives down there. Now, there yeah. are people who use that grub to make salt. They do all kinds of sure. things with it. But the story, as it was told to me, oh was that it was actually the evidence of him buying rotten fruit. Yeah. And he was just <laughs> using it as a marketing gimmick. Oh, man. I, and of, it became a legend. Of all the stories I've heard about why the worm is there, that is my favorite. So I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Anybody so. who knows better can contact me or call me at home yeah. and tell me that I'm an asshole. But that's no. the story that was taught to me by people who were in a position to know. That's my favorite so far, for okay. sure. Okay. So uh, mezcal, as modernly defined, is, first it was any tequila that doesn't conform to a regional subset. Sure. So if it wasn't tequila, it wasn't Bacanora, it wasn't Sotal. It was okay. mezcal. So this is almost Then like... they tightened it up to be the Oaxaca style of mezcal, which is the smoked okay. agave spirit, and they introduced the ex-noms, huh. which became the mezcal arrows. So the closest analogy would almost be like an IGT wine out of Italy, where they're using foreign grapes or something that makes it well, not super part of the AOC. Right. Yeah. Right. It was like the Super Tuscans. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. But then mezcal became just this particularly smoky version of it right at some point but no still the hovens are popular sure. it's just the oaxaca style okay where if it's not smoky you designate it as young okay huh. right interesting yeah so when you when you look at the back of a mezcal bottle and it has that number on it yeah that number is referring to a place a distillery a particular distillery yeah okay so yeah that's... it's a distillery license sure and that's and there's different ma- ways of producing mezcal i know like i've seen if, if there's you look the most at... traditional and the most modern like uh some pelinqueros still actually use a stone wheel at dahona that's pulled by a donkey mm-hmm. like the mezcal that i was working with are uh well no the uh, uh siete leguas tequila which i was selling the donkey's okay. name was papaya <laughs> papaya okay uh it was very nice donkey from what i was told um <laughs> Makes for better spirits. But then the mechanical crushers obviously are much more efficient, much more modern, and sure. you can use the you can use the clay roasting pits, or you can use an autoclave and fry the hell out of it. It depends how small a production you're willing to accept. Is the autoclave method do you do you find that there's something worse about using the autoclave or anything like that, or the more modern techniques? I'm not going to use the word worse. Sure, I'm going to say that. If you are making a very small production product yeah. and you're willing to accept a pretty hard limit on how much of it you can actually bottle, sure. the m- older, more artisanal methods produce a better product. Okay. A very good friend of mine, Ed Draves, he's up in Buffalo at Premier Wines up there. He knows he's more of a mezcal nerd than anyone I can think of. Hmm. And he goes down to Oaxaca all the time. And he gave me a taste 
of he's like this is the best espadina on the market okay and it was i honestly I've, he'll kill me i forget the name of the guy off the top of my head at this very moment in time and espadina is one of the more popular it's ones the most popular species of agave farm it, right can, yeah so the, and it was amazing huh. but the only thing that it reminded me of was back when i was at remy one of the products we sold was matoxa matoxa okay. is the number one spirit in greece Okay. The Greeks don't actually drink that much ouzo. They drink metoxa. Huh. Next after the metoxa, famous grouse. Then, <laughs> then ouzo. But meto- the metoxa brand ambassador, Ellie was as, Effie was as Greek as it gets. Effie Panagopoulos. nice yes. girl. She owns a um, she owns her brand her own brand right now. Uh, female Mestiha. It's f- female owned and manufactured Mestiha. I forget the name of the brand for which I apologize, but it's huh. really good. Huh. Everybody should drink it. Um, I asked her. I said, okay, you're the girl for all things Greek. Yeah. And she said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, where is the place to get this one Greek specialty in New York? And she said, my grandmother's kitchen. (laughs) And I said, where else? And she said, that's it. So having never eaten at her grandmother's house, I just said, okay, I'm not going to get it. But the fact is the small, very close attention paid production method will always yield a better product mm. but that's not always a practical solution sure and is do you think that's because of i mean the 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 analogy that comes to mind is the the van halen brown m&ms thing have you heard this with the rider i remember that that was a joke in wayne's world about Ozzy, but I didn't is, know whether or not that was actually a Van Halen thing or if the urban legend has evolved. There's a real thing, and this is a stretch, but... The brandy me. glass full of brown M&Ms. Well, so that was a, you saw Wayne's World, though, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we had to beat them to death with their shoes. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, that was Wayne's World, too. Yes. Ah, he was, yeah, the guy which from was with less Nail good. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the whole thing was because... So they, they had a... It was part of their contract where they had a rider that said... I think it was the brown or the green M&Ms or something... Where they could only have, you know, say brown M and M's in their yeah. room, yeah. and the whole point was, if someone had thoroughly enough read the contract, they would see they have to have brown and M and M's in there, and if they saw there were brown M and M's in there, it meant they had read all the safety stuff too, and they probably wouldn't be electrocuted on stage. That's clever, but it does seem unlike the boys in Van Halen to be does. that thorough. It's probably their manager came up with that. Yes, no, <laughs> I suspect. My, I don't think that was that was. I don't think Eddie it was the boys or, in the right. band who yeah. were so worried about getting electrocuted. Like you saw, you, you saw Metalocalypse or no? Oh, I love Metalocalypse. Yeah, that's my that's my meal ticket. You're messing with. Yes, <laughs> I think the manager probably had something to do with it. I believe it. Yeah, oh, but, such yeah. a good show. Yeah, but but the analogy I'm thinking is it's like. Are the brown so in that situation the brown M and M's aren't really the thing that matters. It's proof that someone actually read the thing. The fact that they're using a donkey does it mean they're making better mezcal because of the donkey? Because of the donkey that practice, or does it mean they've taken no? All it's the just steps it's indic- it's indicative of the process. Sure, okay. It's not the donkey that's better because most most uh, tequileros at this point they'll st- even the ones that still use a tahona. Yeah, the big the big stone wheel. Sure. It's towed by a tractor. Sure. It could theoretically be suggested that the diesel fumes from a tractor would mm-hmm. affect in some small way the crush. And I've but, had some mezcals that taste like it. I don't know if it's coming from that. But. You never know. It depends on the mezcal. Yeah. Depends on the mezcal. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. So, okay. Um, 
So Satol being something that I'm, I mean, tequila, everybody knows. Mezcal, I think, is getting a little more popular. Do you see Satol as becoming kind of a new, bigger thing at no. this point? No. Yeah. No. I like Satol. Yeah. I particularly like Hacienda de Chihuahua, even though some people don't care for it. Yeah. And it's um, not terribly expensive either. No, it's not. Yeah. It's underpriced. But, um, and kosher. Yeah. But, um, organic. Yeah. I think that if they came up with a new name and started making it in Texas, hmm. I think that that could take off hmm. if it became a new category of Southern American spirit. Interesting. But Chihuahua is not, like, you know, big. Sure. And people are very happy with tequila. Sure. So it's not like people are saying tequila is awful, give us something different. That's true. But if you could make it in the States, give it a different brand identity, but the plant grows, they could make it. Yeah. Uh, I think that that could be an interesting emergent category. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a neat thing. If you've never yeah. tried it, it's definitely worth it. So it's all? Out, I think. Yeah, I like it. I, I like it's stuff. it's much more delicate. Um, it's got a really cool flavor profile. I think it's more grassy than Earthy, peppery. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, huh? So you've kind of you've had almost like all these multiple lives in this industry. It seems like so far from kind of like being fixated on one thing or another because of whatever industry you. Are you calling me a dilettante? I mean, the all shoe right. fits. All right, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it's it's. Part of what makes the, the industry interesting because you can kind of switch from one thing to another. I Considering was... I've almost always been in spirits. Sure. I've had a little bit more professional diversity than some. That makes sense, yeah. But, I mean, I've still spent almost my entire career in either whiskey or agave spirits. Yeah. I've sold brandy. I've sold gin. Sure. Uh, I've never really done much with rum. Right. I've never done a lot with cordials. And never really went into the wine and stuff I, other than I being in a retail I, I store. sold a vodka that one time. Sure. <laughs> um, and I've given classes. I'm giving a wine class tonight, but uh, you know, really? very basic level stuff. What is your wine class? What's that? What's the, what's the deal with your wine class? Oh, it's at my shul. I'm, uh, talking, okay. I'm talking about kosher wine. Okay, huh. Talking about kosher Which could wine. be a whole podcast. There's so many things I don't understand about kosher wine. I barely scratch the surface of, but um, I think that... I'm exactly where I want to be in terms mm. of the professional development that I've had based on the jobs that I've had mm. and where it's taken me. I'm very pleased. Sure. Um, for most people in the spirits business, their career is either retail or distributor or supplier. Sure. Mine is mostly supplier. I did some retail. I did some distributor. I did not care for the distributor end of things. Mm. It was not suited to my skill set. I enjoyed retail, but it's a little limiting. Yep. Um, I'm very happy to work with distilleries, bringing a product that I believe in to market at the right place in its professional development. Mm. Um, it's what I like to do. But I think that... I don't know what the future holds. Sure. I mean, I don't know who does. Sure, right. That's kind of the point. But, you know, there are... I think there are a lot of people who would do well to... Not so much focus in on what they're doing as why they're doing it. I think there are a lot of people in this business who couldn't really give you the 
and this was another Martin Duraz thing, uh, the Highland Park guy back in the day. He told me, and I, at the time I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And mm. As I got older, I was like, oh my God, Martin was so right. He's like, if you can't communicate your brand message in a tweet, and this was 140 character Twitter. Right. This was 2010 Twitter. <laughs> if you can't communicate your brand message in a tweet, you don't understand it. Huh. And to me, if you can't, describe yourself professionally in 140 characters you don't know what you're doing sure if you can't really simplify why you have d chosen to do the thing that you've chosen to do because this isn't you know uh, this isn't working for the electric company sure nobody gets into this by accident yeah this isn't i saw a thing in the one ads and i'm a contractor right even wrong. if you got into it by accident there's you're not, not gonna there's not there's, in it there's by nothing accident. wrong with swimming a ha with swinging a hammer or climbing a ladder all those sure. are perfectly good jobs but not a lot of people get into them because they're passionate about house painting sure if you got into the liquor business you can either get into it because it's a predictable mercenary thing hmm. you see a way to make money sure. or because it's a product that you care about and you want to build but if you've been doing it for as long as I have, if you've been mm -hmm. doing this for a dozen years and you can't give a simple explanation of why you're still doing it, mm. you may never really grow professionally. Sure. You're just going to float. So and if you enjoy that, I guess good for you. But eventually, you know, you're going to be 50. Sure. And you're going to say, you know, I don't have the energy I used to, and I don't want to hang out till four o'clock in the morning every night, and yeah. I've got kids and a mortgage, and have I developed to a place professionally where I can do work that is appropriate for my place in life? Sure. It's, it's like a question you really have to answer if you want fulfillment out well, of your job. That's the thing. Yeah. And you know, years ago, bartender was a job. Before people talked about job versus career, bartender was a thing people did. Sure. And they had a bar, and they had a regular crowd, and they knew how to pour drinks, and they engaged with their customers, and they developed a relationship in the community, and that was their job. Sure. And now, for a lot of these guys, it's like they think they're an artist. Yeah. And that's okay, but like, right. fundamentally, Gary Regan. Okay. I've only met in person Gary a couple few times, but if you don't know him, Gary Regan, uh, Gary Reagan, I honestly, I think it's Regan, um, the... Uh, he has several email mailing lists. He's got a big online presence. He's an old school bartender who understands what it is to be a bartender. Mm -hmm. He got famous for the finger stirred Negroni. Like okay. he'd stick his hand in your drink. That was his thing. His <laughs> finger stirred Negroni. Yeah. The finger stirred Subway Negroni. Finger. <laughs> and Gary, more than anyone I can think of alive, understands what it is to be a bartender. Hmm. And that you need to know recipes and you need to be able to create consistent drinks. But it is a hospitality job hmm. and we're living in an age in the hospitality business where a lot of people have forgotten the hospitality they made the job about them hmm. Hmm. being a bartender is not a you job it's not a oh i'm impressed by how well you juggle mixing cups or how many craft things you can do or how well you smack that basil i'm out for the night hmm. i'm here to have a good time i'm gonna spend my money because i enjoy my time at your place you're not a dancer. Sure. You're not a painter. Yeah. You're a bartender. That's okay. Show me a good time. Present a little something. But at the end of the day, when I think of the bars where I've spent real money 
in my life and I've spent real time in my life. And there were bars where I spent more hours of the day in that bar than I did in my house. Yeah. There were places that felt like home. Yeah. There were the um Lorkin, whose last name I never remember, is the owner proprietor of a bar in the East Village called the William Barnacle. Okay. William Barnacle it was an old speakeasy. It's got a black box theater in the back. But you ask him, he's not a bartender. He's not a bar. Lurkin is a Quaker tavern keeper. Huh. He's Quaker. Yeah. And he refers to his place as a tavern because it's not about drinking. It's a community space. Hmm. It's a place people come together to be together. And he doesn't care if you come in and have a glass of water and hang out for three hours. Hmm. But the idea that that fundamental understanding of a bar as being a place people come together and that takes it right back to what I was talking about in the beginning with the idea of civilization forming around the tavern. Sure. Because the drinking was core, but to a certain extent also incidental kind of to the environment. Yeah. In the hospitality business, in the beverage business, in the distillery business, everything we're doing at the end of the day only has to do with people. Hmm. This isn't vitamin C. Right. And it's not a metro card. Hmm. It's not healthy and you don't need it. Yep. But if we can find a way to make it about the end user and not about ourselves and not an exercise in ego hmm. and not, you know, oh, I won an award and I went to Tales of the Cocktail and I went to Camp Runamuck and look at my Instagram. I've got 10,000 followers. Just at the end of the day, Things are going to find their level again, and either it's going to be fun and easy or it's not. Sure. And if it's not, they're going to quit. Sure. And if it is, they're going to keep coming. Yeah. But you need to make it nice. And it's I think it's an interesting point bringing it back to the social media stuff, too, because it's I, I feel like the one job that will probably never be replaced by automation or will be in like you know, a very far gone Orwellian place by the time it does is bartender. It is. Because the whole point is having a person to talk to, having a real situation and kind of the opposite of what the social media side right. of things is right. is kind of doing in terms of we're all connected, but we're completely isolated. But as much as the craft cocktail people might think, well, the real bars mm. are Clover Club and Pegu and you know back when there was a milk and honey and death sure. and co and and you know the local blarney stone thing by the train station in the suburbs where they've got six beers from ab and bev and whatever was coming in on the empire and southern trucks that week fine yeah those are just there we're the real bars they got it backwards yeah because it's the difference between the opera and the movies Hmm. And opera's great, but opera's dying. Hmm. But people go to the movies because it's not backbreakingly expensive and it's not demanding. And at the end of the day, you are providing a service that nobody needs. So if you make it hard or unpleasant or burdensome, They'll only put up with you for so long. Sure. Yeah, on the li on the list of hierarchy of needs, uh, opera yeah. and bars are at the the very right. top. Right. <laughs> so I mean, I like thing. all the high end bars in the city, and I was sure. pouring the other night at Brandy Library, which I think is yeah, a temple to booze. Phenomenal place. 
and I'll always only speak highly of it. And I've had really good times at Ward 3. And mm. I remember back when you know, craft bars were going on, and I was complaining about it earlier. But there was a bar on 2nd Avenue, and I think it may still be there, called Blue Owl, okay. where they made phenomenal craft cocktails. But I also always had fun. There will always mm. be places like that. But when I think yeah. of the bars where I really lived, I never lived at Blue Owl. I sure. didn't live at Brandy Library. Yeah. I mean, who the hell could afford that? Sure, sure. And eventually, who wants to? But right. I mean... No one's going to the Peter, opera every Friday. Peter like. Dillon's Pub on 40th and Lex. Yeah. <laughs> I spent more time at Peter Dillon's than I have in my current house. Sure. And Irish Haven in Sunset Park on 4th Avenue and 58th. That's the best bar in Brooklyn. Huh. I don't go there anymore for personal reasons, but <laughs> but if you get a chance, that's the best bar in Brooklyn. Huh. Serious. Period. Huh. Best bar in Brooklyn. And I think but I mean, they'll beat the shit out of you if you're an asshole about sure. it. <laughs> Which part of what makes them the best, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> and I think it I mean, I think it's true with the alcohol itself in a lot of ways, where it's like, you know, we were talking about, you know, Buffalo Trace when it first came out. If you're buying it for twenty bucks a bottle, great. If you're buying it you know, on Madison Avenue, and if it's costing you 70 bucks a bottle, it's kind of a different story. Yeah, no. So it's like, it's almost as soon as something becomes so popular that everybody knows about it, it's yeah. no longer worth the price of admission necessarily. When I was still able to drink beer the way I would like to be able to drink beer, I can't I'm anymore. But when I was boat. still, when I, well, <laughs> for different reasons, right. probably, but yeah. But before I was diabetic, when I was able to drink beer the way I really wanted to, I had a very serious, hard and fast rule for my fridge. Mm. If I was buying. A bottle of a craft beer, 12 ounces, 16 ounces, whatever the hell it was, no problem. It went on the top shelf in the fridge next to the milk, Okay. and whatever it was going to cost, it was going to cost. I sure. like Baltica number nine. Okay. Uh, Schneiderweiss, I'm a big fan. Sure. A lot of the local craft guys. Beer, you know, uh, I'll be the first to admit, beer simply doesn't travel well. Sure. Local beer is better than import beer, not because they've made it better, but because beer just doesn't travel well. Sure. That's why they had um, to make IPA. Right. But, but the beer that I drank, I would not pay more than 70 cents a can. And cans, only cans, because bottles are heavy. Sure. So whatever it was, I went to my local beer guy and buy a 30-pack of High Life or Tecate or whatever it was, that was the beer that I drank because it was hot out and I was thirsty. Yeah. And those were the beers, frankly, that I, if I'm being honest, I probably enjoyed those more. But yeah. I love a craft beer when I have the attention to give to it. Sure. But at the end of the day... I've been working for 10 hours. I'm tired. You're not ready for opera. No, just give me something cold that I can knock back and then another one. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, Guinness, people, people, I, I will never understand people who say Guinness is bread in a bottle. I could drink a Guinness faster than I could drink any of the beer on the market. Yeah. And it is actually less calories. It's it is. But <laughs> I could, but I could, but if you give me six 12 ounce bottles of Budweiser and six 20 ounce imperial pints of guinness mm -hmm. i will crush the guinness before i finish sure. the bud sure so you know to me it's at the end of the day there's something in the liquor business that would be well served by taking a step back looking in the mirror and remembering the fundamental realities of the thing that we make mm. and that's it sure well said hmm. um as a Final question. Okay. That actually makes me think of a second one, but we'll try to do it quickly. <laughs> the, as, 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 the, as the pen final question, the penultimate yes. question. Um, so I'm curious, um, at this point, you've had like almost multiple lives in this industry, it seems like. Is there... Didn't you say that 20 minutes ago? I did. Did I go off on a tangent? We tend to. <laughs> That's kind of the deal with the show. So I I've had too. lives. Um, is there specific advice that you would give yourself now when you were entering this industry that you wish you had? 
Oh. Oh, that's a good job. That's a good question. Advice I would give myself when getting into the business. Don't be afraid to say no to a job. Hmm. Don't. Even in New York City. Don't be afraid to say no to a job. Don't be afraid to quit a job that's going unexpectedly. And don't ever think you're better than the job. Hmm. What do you mean by that? I mean, at the end of the day, you took the job. Sure. Whether you should have or not, you did. Do it. Dig in, buckle down, and find a way to make it work. Whatever you've got. Because even if it's not psychically satisfying and it doesn't have a future and it's bad, the fact is your job is to sell the thing. And there is no bad experience when it comes to selling the thing Hmm. whether you're taking away something positive or taking away something negative writing off the thing you're supposed to be selling as unsaleable is beyond unprofessional it's bad for personal development Hmm. because there will be things that are hard to sell and that doesn't mean that it's not your job to sell them sure so it's kind of no matter what the job is, you are going to get something out of it, and you'll get more out of it if you actually put your all into it as opposed to deciding it's The older you. I get, the more I believe that it doesn't matter what anyone is doing. Yeah. It only matters whether or not they're doing it conscientiously and well. Hmm. I've seen guys literally sweeping a floor who I had more professional respect for than I've seen CEOs. guys in in medical fields or in finance because they were obviously focused on their task and it was important to them that they do it well no matter what it was. Hmm. And that matters. Hmm. It makes a difference that whatever you're doing, do it well. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, the, the extra one that I'll give you because you have kids and oh boy. because of the nature of this conversation. No, I don't give my kids alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Who asked? Sometimes I have to shut up and go to bed. No. So I'm my, curious. My, I can tell you for sure. My teething son likes cherry hearing more than Benedictine. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Benedictine would be a little, a little spicy. A little surprising. A little spicy. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anyway, continue. We'll work up to the cast strength. Catoctin Creek. Right. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you know, they become the age where they're ready to drink something and they say, Dad, what should I be drinking? Oh, that's a good question. Um, my daughter, who's nine, always has the option of tasting whatever's in my glass. To date, mm. she has liked nothing, which sure. is fine. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I was young, um, it was a thing in my household. And this was more from my mother's side than my father's side. But the idea that people are going to drink, they're going to do it. One day you're going to be out of the house, you're going to be in college, you're going to have the opportunity to do stupid things in an unsupervised environment. And you're more likely to get yourself in the kind of trouble you can't get out of if it's unfamiliar. 
So it's better for kids to drink a little bit when they're at home so they have some understanding of the way the human body interacts with alcohol, some knowledge of their own tolerance. And the more of an idea people have of what constitutes good booze and bad booze, the less likely they are to drink two gallons of something that came out of a literal garbage can. Sure. Um, I would like to think that I would try, given the option and her preference, to start my daughter with wine. Okay. Um, because wine is better for, it's much lower in alcohol, it's better for developing a palate, it's easier to pair with food. Sure. Huh. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that I would encourage her to begin with spirits. Sure. It's too hard to manage any sort of alcohol level. You can give a 13-year-old half a glass of wine, maybe put some water in it. Nobody's going to get sick or get hammered off that. Sure. And you're at home. You're going to have dinner and they're going to go to bed. Um, if I'm having a glass of anything, she's welcome to taste whatever it is. Sure. To date, she's hated everything. Sure. And again, that's fine. Oh, I... But she'll always be welcome to taste sure. whatever I'm having. I don't. I think I was probably 16, maybe 15, but I was probably 16 when I was allowed to have my own drink. Sure. Um, but you were able to taste as well when you were growing up? or Yeah. And um, the... My mother, my mother drinks whatever's around, but sure. my mother, uh, we, it was a lot of absolute vodka because that was the fashionable thing. And my father bought it by the case of the liquor store and we had it in the house. Sure. She drank, you know, that or Tanqueray and Tonic sure. was her big thing. It was all clear liquors with her. Well, there's also... Uh, with my dad, yeah. he drank Jack Daniels on the rocks and I was allowed to taste it and I didn't care for it right away, but eventually I got into it. Um, but uh, the funny thing was my mother bought the beer. My father drank the beer. My mother bought the beer. Okay. My mother didn't drink beer, didn't care about beer. My father knew what good beer was, but my mother bought all the beer, and she bought whatever was cheapest. Because <laughs> she was like, I don't give a shit about this. I'm just buy whatever's cheapest. So yes. we always had in the house either, okay, this is going to be beers that maybe don't even exist anymore. Sure. Well, Rolling Rock, which still is still does exist. That's right. Meisterbrow. Do you remember Meisterbrow? That sounds vaguely. I think familiar. I'm about. I, I think I'm like ten years older than you. Meisterbrow might not yeah, exist anymore. Eighty four. This was. Oh no! So you, I'm only five years on you. Yeah. I remember Meisterbrow when I was in college, and cheap beer was cheap because cheap beer isn't cheap anymore. Sure. When I was when I was nineteen, and I would be buying beer, Meisterbrow was a dollar twenty a six pack. Okay. Oh. That is cheap. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'd get and that was when Rolling Rock. Rolling Rock was fancy. Is, Rolling yeah. Rock was like a dollar sixty. Sure. Sure. But, uh, yeah, there was always terrible cheap beer in the house, which, frankly, the funny thing is terrible cheap beer is easy for younger people to drink. It doesn't taste like That's much. That's very true. It doesn't well, taste like much. I remember at one point my mom wanting to buy the cheapest beer she could find because it was useful for keeping the slugs out of the garden. My grandfather used beer to keep slugs out of the garden. My dad ended up trying it and loved it, so he'd drink through all of it. <laughs> like, when, my, when my wife, when we got married, before we got married, when we were dating, engaged, whatever we were, yeah. she only drank spirits. Yeah. She has a terrible wine allergy, mm. which I cannot explain. Sure. She can drink natural wines, organic wines, whatever it is that she's allergic to, she's allergic to it. Huh. I have gotten her into wine. I buy all the wine that she can drink that I can get my hands on, and she's developing a sense of wine, but she never had any interest in it. She didn't care for beer. Yeah. But I said, you're going to like beer. We're just going to find the right beer for you. Yeah. And I, when I say I gave her all the beers. I believe like, you. You know, the yeah. first the <laughs> first beer that she actually said, wow, this is really good. Yeah. Genesee Cream Ale. My goodness. Jenny Cream. She's like, this is really good. And I'm like, you know what? That gave me a window into your palate. Yeah. Now I understand what you like and what you don't like. Sure. And what you don't like is hops. Sure. 
so you know what it and the bitter then intense and then yeah. we tasted a variety of other beers and you know what it turns out she loves what's that dunkel she okay. loves German winter. That makes sense. Yeah, she loves German dark winter beers. Huh. But that's what you can only get at some of the year. Sure. And then we found an Icelandish stout that she really digs. But it's just a matter of finding that's the thing that the thing that speaks to a person's palate. But huh. no, I mean, if my kid wants to have a Tecate or whatever I have in the fridge, that's fine. Sure. Well, I remember very specifically too being. How much trouble are you going to get? And if you're if you're having a beer at home, right. you fall asleep. Yeah, that bums me out. Right. But you know, do you make your kids stand up when they're trying your alcohol too? So we, yeah, we, we are not there yet. <laughs> yeah. We are not there yet. There will be no drinking contests yes, for my kids. That's very reasonable. None but I mean, that. there's there's some good point to it too. And even I mean, part of the. Um, Jewish religion too kind of involves a lot of wine where I mean I remember my my only my dad is Jewish but it was always something where kind of culturally it was like it's around there's there's a fantastic book called Jews and Booze that if you haven't read you must I must that sounds it's really and it's it's actually about the Jewish reaction to prohibition huh and it's fantastic that's fascinating and it's about the idea that culturally Jewish observance involves a fair amount of alcohol, sure. but the idea of public drunkenness was always very frowned right. upon. Yeah. So we were trapped between worlds, between what was essentially a Protestant political movement on total uh, teetotaling, sure. which Jewish observance couldn't allow. Right. And um, Man, this and is- what was seen by some as Catholic overindulgence in the public sphere. Sure. So uh, you know, Jews were sort of trapped in the middle and it's a good read sure ah, yeah. that's fascinating yeah but yeah i mean i remember very specifically being maybe 12 years old and being at the beach and seeing my dad drinking a i think it was a dogfish head 60 minute like fairly strong ipa and seeing there was a shark on it and asking if i could try some and he kind of looks at the bottle and looks at me and goes sure and it probably kept me off a of beer until i was halfway through college because <laughs> i tried it and it was kind of gross but it's yeah it's that early introduction i think is a very very reasonable thing and and may have a counterintuitive effect of you know the more you're educated about it the less likely you are to abuse it i remember i remember even my parents thinking you know i was buying all this alcohol and they're like worried is he becoming an alcoholic and it's like if i'm buying springbank 15 on a regular basis i do not have the funds to become an alcoholic with that (laughs) (laughs) so it's I, i think there is a lot that goes hand in hand with the educational side and treating alcohol with a certain amount of respect there is and uh, at the end of the day it's a thing that has been a part of human culture and the human experience for many millennia Mm -hmm. it's not going away yep and something that the better you understand it the more likely you are to use it responsibly perfect Yeah. yeah couldn't agree more yeah well thank you so much for giving me so much of your time and hopefully you didn't get a parking ticket we're gonna find out i guess more than willing to cover it if you did oh excellent (laughs) yes um yeah so thanks for coming by my pleasure you have so many stories i'm sure i could see us doing this again we'll shake hands no one will see that but we will there we go excellent all right all right thanks a lot dan my pleasure so i found it somewhat interesting Dan talking about originally what he wanted to be when he was a younger child was an archaeologist and in the interview 
he couldn't draw a line between archaeology and the rest of the different things that he wanted to do and what he ultimately ended up doing in the alcohol industry. However, looking back on it, I think I can see a lot of parallels. Uh, when you're an archaeologist, your whole thing is kind of about showing people things they've never seen before and unearthing treasures. And I think he's absolutely doing that. I think it's a lot of what we do in the alcohol industry, especially when you're working with smaller brands. Your whole thing is showing people things they've never seen before, or opening them up to new experiences or even new ways of viewing the world if you want to get really heavy with drinking. Uh, <laughs> philosophically heavy, that is. So it's, it's an interesting parallel, I think. Um, and goes back to my point about often the things we think we want to do when we're younger don't necessarily work out exactly the way we expect them to, but there's still probably a kernel of truth about what we're meant to do or what we're good at or what we can offer the world in looking at that original passion. So I think Dan has absolutely found a place and found a way to do what he wanted to do when he was just a youngster with the idea of archaeology. And I think it's what he was doing when he was introducing people to different cigars as well. And when that career ended, he was able to change and find something eventually that gave him a similar outlet. So I think it's a useful exercise for us all to go to, whether we're sick of what we're doing, or we love what we're doing, or we're somewhat indifferent, or mildly interested. Either way, I think it's important to take a look at what do you enjoy offering the world, and how are you doing that and what you're currently doing, and how could you be doing it better, whether it's continuing to do the same job in the same industry or switching things up entirely. So I hope this interview was interesting and useful to you. Uh, Dan certainly is full of stories. I'm certainly interested to see where he will go with his job uh, with Catoctin Creek and what he'll be doing in the future. So best of luck to Dan and best of luck to you guys. Cheers. <laughs>